Prince and Michael Jackson. They were both black men from the Midwest. They both had abusive fathers. They were both precocious musical standouts from a young age. They both became stars and eventually superstars during the exact same period. They were both the first African-American sex symbols in pop music, or perhaps in any area, whose appeal transcended ethnic boundaries. Their songs have been, and continue to be, celebrated by multiple generations of music fans. More importantly, their music influence, and continues to influence, multiple generations of musical artists to this day. We've done four installments so far in our series examining the fascinatingly parallel careers of the twin towers of R&B and pop in the 1980s. On this episode, Chris and I will give you the final installment of Prince and Michael's careers, focusing on the sad twilights of their lives and careers in the 21st century, leading up to their tragic deaths. Welcome to Prince vs. Michael Jackson, the final chapter. Welcome, everyone, to the 26th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from suburban Houston, and with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Gwangju, South Korea. Good. Yes. And we host the podcast made just for you. We don't do hot takes on this thing. We do honest takes. So then this podcast belongs to you. Now, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, And we live uh, rock and roll uh, in its full majesty and in its full color and at full force. And hey, uh, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff that you never knew before. And now you can join us on our new invite-only Facebook group, which we call the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly Community. Join us there and share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with fellow travelers along the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. Arturo, Happy New Year, brother. Happy New Year. Um, This is the first uh, podcast, our first episode, uh, our first episode of the new calendar year. Um, And, you know, it's fitting that we're doing Prince versus Michael Jackson, our final chapter. It's been, what, six years now since Prince died and 13 years since Michael Jackson died. Yep. Um, so I don't, yeah. see, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's, if there's any a numerical, you know, interesting stuff going on there, but. <laughs> no, hey, hey, it is what it is. And hey, why not, why not uh, begin uh, a glorious new year by talking about death? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, not yeah. just not just death. I mean, I guess that's the spoiler. Uh, this is the last chapter. We will talk about the 2000s uh, portion for Michael and Prince, where I guess you can say it had tragic endings, but weren't completely terrible. I mean, in especially es- especially in Prince's end, it's not completely terrible at all. No, not at all. I think, uh, but we'll we'll certainly get into that. But uh, you know, we have a. Uh, a, a portal to the other uh, end of the dimension to get to first. Yes. Uh, do we not? Absolutely. Uh, the music is coming. The spaceships are landing. 
Uh, the Martians are in control. Yes, folks, we are in the parallel universe uh, where uh, there's a rip in the space-time continuum, which sounds like one of my farts. And uh, it, uh, it reveals that there is a world where rock and roll is still taken seriously. And uh, there is such a thing as a rock star uh, that deserves uh, to be a rock star that plays those arenas and uh, stadiums. Although not right now because of Omicron, uh, uh, Fish and uh, my morning jacket and a few others had to cancel. Uh, boohoo. Although uh, String Cheese Incident did not. Uh, fuck them. Uh but here we are again, the Parallel Universe segment where we both take a turn in uh, introducing you to a new album that we are uh, vibing on and recommending to you strongly. Arturo, uh, you are up first. Uh, what's in your queue here in the Parallel Universe? Yes. Okay. Now, I'm talking about the, the British band Idols, and their latest album came out in October, Crawler. Now, Idols are one of the biggest and most critically acclaimed rock groups in the UK right now. In a parallel universe, they would be much bigger in the US. So, hey, there's our angle. Um, Their loud, brash brand of highly politicized punk rock has kind of placed them alongside Slayford mods in the vanguard of a quote-unquote important contemporary British bands. Now, I have to admit something here. I previously never liked this band, except for a couple of songs. I thought their first two albums, 2017's Brutalism and 2018's Joy is an Act of Resistance, were just the same monotonous punk rock noise over and over again. Once you've heard one Idol song, you've heard them all, you know. Um, However, uh, they started to make a little change. Uh, Their COVID lockdown album of 2020, Ultra Mono. Um, was mostly more of the same, except with a couple of tracks that harkened back to the industrial metal sound of Godflesh for all like one or two people out there who still remember Godflesh. This intriguingly hinted at a band that was possibly ready to break out of the the, the musically conservative shackles, uh, if you will, of traditional punk rock. But, oh my God, did this in no way prepare the listener for the quantum leap this band has just made on Crawler. Uh, This just came out of nowhere. Um, All of a sudden, we get distinctive songs with interesting, memorable riffs. Melodies and honest-to-God hooks seep into the mix. Wow. Uh, Imagine that. I know, right? Unconventional rhythms galore. Uh, You can't really call them a punk rock band anymore. They're now more of a post-punk band edging into alternative, really. Um, They've always been political, you know, hardcore leftists, like a lot of the the great British punk bands. But their best songs are now all about the personal or the realm of the personal. Uh, Most of the album deals with frontman Joe Talbot's alcoholism and mental health issues. Um, standout tracks uh, for those you're interested and don't want to listen to the album. You care about individual songs. You have the intense churning The Wheel, where Talbot does a mock gospel chant of Can I Get a Hallelujah as the chorus hook. Yes, it's ironic. The song is about dealing with depression and frustration. Um, there's New Sensation, which lashes out at media-obsessed pop stars and Grooves like the Canadian band Mets trying to be funky. 
<laughs> you have When the Lights Come On, which does Joy Division better than any band has since Joy Division and inverts the classic uh, Pete Townsend lyric by claiming the kids are not all right. <laughs> there you um, go. So um, welcome to relevance, idols, at least to these curmudgeonly ears. Um, you've made the densest, most dynamic rock album of 2021. And in my opinion, the only genuine five-star album of the year to boot. Great album. Yeah. Check it out. Like you said, it's not punk. It's uh, it's way more artsy and way more thought out than that. And uh, like you said, you know, one of the themes is that sort of the bleakness of addiction. It makes me wonder if like alcoholism was like, okay, I'm really fucked up now. And so uh, I, I don't need punk and I'm just going to do what I'm capable of. So who knows? Yeah. Maybe Maybe illness makes for a better record. Yeah, well, I mean, Talbot himself in an interview said that the last album, Ultra Mono, was like the most, the most idols, idols album we could have made. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> said, you know, yeah. so like after this, like we just can't do that shit anymore. So like yeah. they told for this fourth album, they totally just like basically went back to the drawing board and just just reinvented themselves from scratch. And I think they're all the better for it. This is not only their best album; it's by far and away their best album. Yeah. And it, it's interesting you say that because, you know, here we are like, you know, the first week of, of January of a new year and, you know, we're all in that introspection mode. And uh, one of the things that's tough, uh, and I think a lot of us go through this, at least at some point, I just went through this like six months ago where you're like, uh, the only thing worse than phoning it in is knowing that you're phoning it in yeah, and, catch, and catching yourself phoning it in. Yeah. And so, well, thank goodness. Because, like you said, if if it's we we sound like ourselves, oh shit, that's not a good thing, you know. So yeah, yeah. here you go, and lo and behold, I know it's your number one. It's not necessarily my number one, but uh, it's a good record. It's it's very good record, and it uh, it makes me not want to listen to their previous stuff uh, from the way that you describe it. You know, <laughs> yeah, they, they, I, I don't want it to spoil. Me. You might you might as well start with this. If you're an American fan, start with this album. <laughs> Right. I know we we have friends and associates that probably disagree with us, and I'm sure that several of you uh, who are just as uh, uh, digging in the crates rock geek as us probably do. If you do, uh, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Speaking of which, uh, going further into the parallel universe, there's probably a few of you that might fuss with my choice uh, this week as well. I'm making a a superlative argument uh, as well, and this is not uh, post-punk. This is hip-hop. And I will be focusing on an album by a British uh, Nigerian female rapper named Little Sims. And this is her album, Sometimes I Might Be Introvert. And uh, let me uh, describe this. It's been getting a lot of praise and it actually deserves it. How about that? So uh, our longtime listeners might remember that in 2021, I covered uh, albums in this Parallel Universe segment by a couple of black rappers from the U.K., uh, both first-generation children of immigrants with lots to say about the ebb and flow and the slings and arrows of being black, middle-class, and different in modern-day Britain. Uh, now, as the end of this year, this last year, 2021, appro- uh, approached, uh, I considered uh, Get's Conflict of Interest, that's one, and Dave's We're All Alone in This Together, that's the other, among the best records I had heard, uh, probably both on my top 25. Uh, but then I had realized I missed a spot when I was uh, reading all the coverage of the year's uh, best records into the top tens. 
And uh, notice that I missed a spot from that exact same scene, which I'll call sort of the Afro-British first generation scene. And uh, there was this album, uh, Sometimes I Might Be Introvert by Lil Sims. And now I realize that those guys are actually mediocre in comparison with her. So now let us bow at the feet of, and I hope I get this right, Simbi Abasola Abiola Ajikawa. Ajikawa. Uh, she is 27 years old, and she is from of uh, Nigerian Yoruba descent. Now, uh, this album, uh, I really believe it's the best hip-hop album I've heard uh, in a while, probably the best one I've, I heard in uh, 2021. Uh, it exudes a cool confidence, and uh, for this era, it's unusually varied uh, musically. Uh, you get Afrobeat, you get 70s R&B, uh, some free jazz, uh, some disco. Uh, a few spots remind me of Tricky Era, uh, British EDM. Uh, some Trap House, for all you Chief Keep fans out there, uh, all four of you. Uh, and uh, some over-the-top cinematic score-style classical stuff. Uh, do some of her producers bite Kanye West's classic work out here at times? What with the... Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Just, yeah, with the sped up and altered vocal samples from the old Soul Cannon. Yeah, sure. Uh, but they also know that Lil Sims is a star who can turn their reverence into original bursts of edgy feminism and old school braggadocio. Now, uh, if uh, Sims can star over the beats that you have heard before, like those, then just imagine how great she is when she sounds over stuff that maybe you have not heard so much in hip hop or if ever. So uh, let's run through a few highlights. Now let's take the song Speed. Uh, this is a minimalist track uh, driven by an Afro-inspired drum beat and this weird-ass little keyboard loop. And she rides that beat like it's a 1977 Stingray. Uh, then there's the song Rolling Stone. Uh, not exactly the most inspired name, but uh, it this song is even weirder and even cooler. Uh, song starts as an homage to the kind of stuff that Timbaland and Ludacris uh, we're doing together 20 years ago where it's all itchy and twitchy and featuring the kind of clever in-character disses that Ludo was a master at uh, back then. Uh, but then the song segues into this really kind of weird super spare and uh, cheap sounding drum clap that has a spooky trap house uh, bass line uh, over it. And now all of a sudden this sort of dripping uh, charisma and uh, uh, play uh, uh, toughness sort of turns into icicles in, vo in vocal form. Uh, gets darker and really personal. Uh, my favorite line in there uh, is, you can't diss me three time, uh, pull up behind, you'll never see I'm probably the reason why your bosses had to resign. Uh, kind of fun. And then you get the truly magnificent one-two punch towards the, uh, the back end of the album of Point and Kill and Fear No Man. Uh, these are explicitly steeped in Nigerian funk. Uh, the polyrhythms, the chants, the horn breaks, uh, and then that distinctive groove that, uh, that was made world famous by Fela Kuti and his, uh, his peers there. And uh, Lil Sims pulls a really neat trick because it doesn't seem to me that that would be the easiest thing to have a, a smooth flow over, but she does it masterfully. So... Uh, it's eccentric, but she handles it and tackles it like a master. So now, I uh, can't say this album's perfect, and it's, it's definitely not five stars. Uh, 
because just a like just like every other hip hop album these uh, days are released over the last 15 years uh sometimes i might be extroverted it falls a few times into those hokily introspective monologia and those sort of abstract bullshit uh tracks that we've complained about on this podcast before yep i mean i guess it's hard to be sims's age and uh, to not uh be uh, influenced by Drake and Nicki Minaj and the other big names in the main, the mainstream. But hey, you get rid of these several what she calls interludes, and the album pretty much approaches greatness. Uh, but damn it, she can't help herself, and uh, you know there goes that. Uh, even so, uh, Little Sims's "Sometimes I Might Be Introvert" is definitely, in my opinion, a must hear. It is the rare hip hop release these days that actually advances the idiom. And for that, she deserves an applause. Yeah, I'll keep my uh, my review really short. I don't think this album is very good. Um, two reasons. Number one, Inflow, the mastermind behind Salt, the group Salt, he produced this record. And I don't like the job he did on this record for the most part. For the most part. I'm not a fan of the, of, of, of the symphonic production. Um, for me, like strings and hip hop don't really go well together unless like... You're doing some dirty, some really weird, dirty shit like RZA does at his best. Yeah, the, 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 back in the day, they called those drama beats, and there were very few people that could do them well. Like uh, Noriega could do a drama beat really well. But, yeah, uh, very few and far between that could do it. Yeah, well, this this album is for like it's like seventy to eighty percent one gigantic drama beat, and I'm not a fan of it. I think <laughs> I think I, I think it's a bit bloated. I think it's a bit indulgent. Yeah, I get the eclecticism that she's going for, but and, and, and this, this dovetails into my critique number two. Um, I think the production takes away from the songs. And the songs, in my opinion, don't have much to offer because I don't think Little Sims is a very good rapper. Um, she has the same flow in every single song. No, she I raps, disagree, actually. She, she kind of, almost every single song. She raps the same way. It's the same flow over and over again. It's to the point where she's not even rapping. She's just speaking fast. Yeah, you know. I mean, don't I mean, but but don't confuse flow with uh, with voice uh, inflection. I think that her flow, uh, she mixes it up. I mean, like I said, a couple of those songs. I don't think so. I mean, she's yeah, able to know. do like you know, like Rolling Stone. She does this sort of classic, like uh, those kind of slinky flows that Timbaland. You almost had to do those kind of flows back then. She so she kind of does that. Uh, she has some more sort of psychotic uh, trap house flows, and uh, and there there's that. The one thing I will say, yeah, her voice is kind of flat and uh, maybe purposefully uh, sociopathic. Uh, that I guess would be one complaint. Uh, you know, and I, I understand where you're saying. I think that um, it's easy to get caught up in those interludes, which, like I said, they're basically these they're, they're these five minute streamed of consciousness, maybe, maybe stoned off her ass monologues. Uh, with some of that, with some of those uh, string uh, beats, you you cut back on those. Uh, you're talking about one of the best hip hop records of the last ten years. Uh, but for where we are in 2021, uh, this is this was the best of these hip hop records uh, I that think, I heard I think, last I year. Think, I think she needs to work on her rapping skills. I think she, <laughs> I think she yeah. needs to stop listening to mainstream American hip hop artists and get a little more down with the underground. Yeah. To her, to her credit, to her credit, she said that uh, mm -hmm. toward the end of the year, she gave an interview. She said that she uh, was really inspired by idols 
recent album and that it may that, that it may be an influence on her next record well it, it yeah. can only it can only improve her music i'll say that yeah much. i was gonna say you know take take this sort of uh you know like you said e- emo afro beat thing and now you know put it through that same joy division buzzer and oh that 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 would be an interesting that would be some interesting shit you know and, and, and maybe get idols in the studio with her too to help her out because i think she needs the help oh geez yeah the, no, there, there, there's an interesting mix, you know. So, on that note, uh, so uh, there are our parallel choice, uh, parallel universe choices for the week: Idols and Little Sims. Definitely go check them out uh, wherever you get your music, whether you go streaming or you go torrents. Doesn't matter. Uh, we want you listening to the new shit, and we want you listening to it intently. Now, uh, we have uh, Prince and Michael Jackson to talk about. Our Arturo, launch us into uh, the the main uh, meat. Here of the yes, yes, I will welcome everyone listening to the final installment. All of you out there listening, the millions and millions of curmudgeonly fans. Yes, well, I'd like to welcome you all to the final installment of our epic, critically acclaimed, award winning series chronicling the parallel careers of the two male titans of 1980s pop. In the previous installment, four episodes ago. We delved into the 1990s, where Michael Jackson's commercial and artistic fortunes started to drop. His disturbing obsession with plastic surgery started to put off the public, and his even more disturbing pedophilia became common knowledge and tabloid news fodder, and his addiction to pain-killing drugs deepened. Prince, on the other hand, started the decade wonderfully with the near-masterpiece Love Symbol, then embarked on a much-publicized battle with his label, Warner Brothers, over artistic freedom and the control of his master tapes. The result wasn't just the change of his name into a symbol to prevent Warner Brothers and his publishing company with Warner Brothers from making money from his name. The standoff also resulted in a staggering plethora of album releases that released him from contractual duties to Warner Brothers and reinforced his belief in an artist's right to release as much music as they want. Now, the utter and defiant lack of quality control (laughs) leads to an extremely inconsistent output that produced some gems if one is so inclined to dive deep into that discography. Now, in this final and quite frankly sad chapter in the series, we dive into what for Michael is his final decade until his death in 2009 and what for Prince is his final decade and a half until his death in 2016. Michael only releases one album during this time and he makes more news for his legal wranglings with his record label and surprise, surprise, more people accusing him of sexually abusing children. He never finishes the album that was supposed to be the follow-up to 2001's Invincible, and his drug abuse catches up to him as he dies in 2009 of a heart attack, just before he was to embark on a half-year residency of concerts at London's O2 Arena. The new decade and century sees Prince ditching the symbol and going back to recording and performing under his name. He puts out a steady slew of studio albums from 2001 onward with wildly varying results. Um, A super fast sprint review of all his 21st century albums will culminate the Prince section of this episode. However, it's as a touring artist that Prince really shines during this time 
raking in millions of dollars as a legacy artist selling out arenas throughout the world and turning on younger generations of music fans to his brilliance. More importantly, it's during this time that Prince seemingly started to feel at ease with his status as an elder statesman and pop music icon. Alas, like Michael Jackson, Prince also succumbed to years of abusing painkiller drugs and died of an overdose in 2016. So as sad as their stories ended, this is really a celebration of two artists who defined their era, transformed R&B and pop music in the process, and will forever endure as undying influences for future generations of music fans. There's always a good time to be found within the Curmudgeon Rock Report's curmudgeonly community. That is our invite-only private Facebook group that Arturo and I launched in December. So far, it's been a spirited romp through this podcast's decidedly bent worldview, and as it turns out, through those of our members as well. Now, is Iron Maiden a good example of a band that blended musel mastery and pop accessibility to an acceptable degree? Well, one of our members sure thinks so, and we gave him the safe space to do it, damn it. If bold opinions and thoughts and passionate defenses of rock and roll are your jam, then the Curmudgeon Rock Report's curmudgeonly community is for you. Come find us, and we will probably let you in. Okay, so Prince versus Michael Jackson, the final chapter. Now we will delve into the final decade of Michael Jackson's life, the final sad decade of Michael Jackson's life. Chris, let's get started. Yeah, so when we talk about uh, Michael, I know at the top of the show that you mentioned all of those uh, wonderful things that were going on, at least with the 90s, when we talked about this in uh, Chapter 4, at that point, uh, we had seen the morphing of Michael from handsome black man into creepy-looking white woman, (laughs) Uh, and uh, you had uh, the stories of the drug abuse, obviously, the uh, disturbing uh, lawsuit and settlement that he got hit with in 93. Want to make it clear, by the way, Michael was never convicted of any of this uh, stuff. uh, That is true. That is uh, true. Involving his, uh, these accusations that he molested children. Uh, But that first came, comes up in the nineties. His music output is solid, but all of the other bullshit was overshadowing it. And then a strange thing happens 2000, 2001, you start to get this divide where uh, the new generation of black R&B and hip hop artists want to celebrate the accomplishments and the legacy of Michael Jackson. And music fans out there are realizing that Michael is a legend, still enjoying the songs. You know, Thriller is still selling like crazy. Bad is still selling like crazy. Off the Wall is starting to become a uh, canonical classic and on everybody's top 100, it's in my personal top 10. Uh, at the same time, though, we all just wanted the current version of Michael Jackson to go away <laughs> and to not have anything to do with us ever. So there's this real dichotomy of knowing that we have a, a genius worth celebrating who creeps us the fuck out otherwise. Uh, and I think that this really manifests itself in Michael's only album, of uh, the 2000s. Remember, he only made it to 2009, so we're only talking about a nine-year streak here. Uh, He releases the album Invincible on October 30th, uh, 2001. Uh, As it proves out, uh, Invincible was anything but. 
this album took four years and $30 million uh, to produce, uh, which might as well make it the Ishtar of all albums. Ooh. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And man, that's cold. So let's talk a little bit about this piece of shit or this record. Uh, now I'll give it only, this. only, only a little bit, please. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to go into like an hour-long uh, diatribe or a treatise. So Invincible comes out in 2001, month after September 11th. Uh, that's a bad omen right there. Who the hell yeah. wants phony Michael Jackson right after, you know, the world has ended? Uh, I'll say this about the record. Uh, the production is so clean you could eat broccoli off it. Uh, but by this point, Michael seems like he was so desperate for a hit or at least continued relevance that he tried for his own age phase which, like I said before, it took about four years and $30 million to create. Uh, and when he released it, he had 16 songs, and it was worth 70, 76 minutes. Again, may, may, I, may I interrupt, Chris? For those you of you out there who don't know Aja, Aja is the classic album by Steely Dan from 1977 that took, like, I don't know how much, like millions of dollars to make and, like, an army of 500 session musicians. Yeah, I, well, I was getting to that. But uh, but Steely Dan, he was not. Uh, and again, so there's the 16 songs, the 70, 76 minutes, uh, like we like you alluded to. Seemed like if you look at the credits, they're like a mile long, and there's maybe like, yeah. maybe at least a hundred people that were involved in this thing. Uh, and but you know they tried to do the. He maybe thought he was doing the Steely Dan thing and getting desperate. But you know Steely Dan made a classic. Uh, Michael, no, he no longer had the songs or the edge or anything interesting to say. And the only things he had to say are all the stuff that he had said, had to say before, you know, the kind of the sexual obsessions, the paranoia, the, uh, the media stuff, all that. And he was retreading it and he had said it much, much, much better 15 to 20 years earlier, uh, which obviously put him in a position to put out this piece of crap, but he was not going to recreate any magic. Uh, best thing I can say about the record is that there's some really nice drum machine programming and vocal overdubbing, and it was a showcase for a young producer at the time named Rodney Jerkins, who was uh, uh, pumping out hits for lots of R&B folks, and he was a hot name. Uh, Jerkins comes in and co-writes and produces uh, six songs on the record, uh, a few really interesting experiments that if it hadn't been for Michael Jackson might have actually been pretty good. Uh one called Heartbreaker, which is uh, very much a, a reggae-inspired, jittery, up-tempo thing, really more sort of dubstep. And again, if you take Michael and his blithering, uh, you know, sort of self-importance out of it, not bad. Uh, but then you get to the album's uh, first single, which is called "You Rock My World," uh, which is reminiscent of the lesser songs on Bad. And yeah. also, also sounded strangely like almost everything else coming out in 2001. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be a stretch for Beyonce to sing over this thing or shit, you know, for Jay-Z to rap over it. I mean, literally, it sounds like everything else. Talk about drama beats. This is like Michael, you know, putting out uh, an R&B song over a, a drama bit uh, or a drama beat. The best thing about it is the, the Chris Tucker shtick at the beginning of it. So... <laughs> Let's just put it this way. The song is so competently Michael is that it's boring as hell. It's just Michael doing his thing, but with like no juice behind it. And it's just a snoozer. But boring is at least forgivable. Uh, ripping yourself off isn't. And yeah. actually with the song Butterflies, Michael isn't even really ripping himself off. 
Uh, I do not think it is a coincidence that Butterfly sounds a whole lot like I Can't Help It from Off the Wall. Yeah. Similar instrumentation, similar verse-chorus structure, similar sexual longing theme. Okay, fine. But Stevie Wonder wrote I Can't Help It, not Michael. Now, this is how far gone Michael was at this point in terms of inspiration. Uh, oh, and then there's the song The Lost Children. I encourage you. Uh-oh. It. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. The, what, what, where were they found? Yeah, I was going to say this is this is a better this is a better chapter than the found children. I don't want to hear about the found children. Uh, but yes, I know. Uh, I encourage everyone to listen to this song because it makes "Heal the World" sounds like it really does. It makes it sound like "Hey Jude." Let me, let me repeat that. This song, "The Lost Children," makes "Heal the World" sound like "Hey Jude." This may actually be Michael's worst song. Which, given given the deterioration uh, of his uh, music over the preceding decade, is really saying something. Mm. Uh, nope, this is desperation, not inspiration. And it was clear that with Invincible, Michael was either approaching or had reached artistic bankruptcy, which is a perfect way to segue into our next discussion. Correct, Arturo? Oh yeah, I, honestly, my my, my favorite uh, uh, aspect of Invincible is the feud with his record label that it started. Yes. Yeah, and that's where we're going. So we talk about artistic bankruptcy, which is better than uh, almost risking real bankruptcy. Uh, so now Michael had been part of Epic slash Columbia slash Sony for a long time uh, since actually goes back to the Jacksons. Uh, and uh, and then he releases his first album on Epic. So longstanding relationship. Chairman at the time at this point was Tommy Matola, otherwise known as uh, Mariah Carey's uh, ex-husband. So Invincible uh, is very poorly received, or at least as poorly received as a two-time platinum record can be. This album still sold two million or shipped two million copies in the States, even though, you know, people didn't care about it at all after September 11th. So it's so badly received that Michael's label literally stopped promoting it, literally, as in just dropped it in 2002. And so Michael throws a fit and goes out there and is calling Mr. Matola a racist devil uh, <laughs> uh, all over the place, saying that it's a conspiracy against us, me as a black man, to make me look bad. Uh, Michael is so out of line, even Al Sharpton wanted nothing to do with this. True story. Go look it up. The New York Post reported on this. Al Sharpton wanted nothing to do with Michael Jackson attacking Tommy Mottola. And so you do that and you refuse to tour to get back at Tommy Mottola. Well, you know, Tommy Mottola is signing the checks. And so that is a good way to lose your record label deal. Yeah. Which Michael did. Uh, And so now he's in 2002. His album has bombed. Uh, Obviously, it was a money loser. It wasn't well received. Uh, You know, You Rock My World was only a minor hit, a modest hit. And so he's kind of like, okay, uh, I'm stuck in a vortex here. So how can I rehab uh, my image? My favorite part of this story coming up. (laughs) Yes. And so uh, somebody thought in Michael's camp that it was a good idea to get in touch with Martin Bashir, uh, who at that point was most famous for reportage on Princess Diana in Britain with the BBC. And of course, as it comes out, he did a, basically he did a whole lot of lying. He lied to Diana 
<laughs> it took coerce her to actually do the special. And that, that's where Bashir became famous. He did an interview with Diana, but coerced her and lied to her about the background to get her on camera. <clears throat> and so he turns out to be a disgraced scumbag. But anyway, <clears throat> but at the time, he was one of the more respected journalists in Britain. Michael agrees to do this special called, I believe, Living with Michael Jackson. Uh, and this comes out in early 2003. And it is a complete, utter, unbelievable disaster uh, for Michael for uh, several oh. reasons. Let me let me just uh, there's a, a wonderful I guess you could call it an obituary that an old friend of mine, Brian Hyatt, who writes for Rolling Stone, wrote uh, in 2009. Basically, uh, a, a what went wrong obituary. This is how it begins. Uh, so and I'll just read this from Brian's story. As Michael Jackson hits his mid 40s. He was addicted to prescription painkillers, running out of cash, facing fading career prospects, and a television special was about to ruin what was left of his life. Jackson had agreed to cooperate on an all-access documentary with British journalist Martin Bashir, believing that a candid look at his life, complete with quotes such as, if there were no children on this earth, I would jump off the balcony immediately, would make the world finally understand him, and help him launch a thriller-level comeback. Just before the documentary's 2003 airing, uh, one of Jackson's then-associates got word of its contents and had the unpleasant job of telling Jackson that Bashir's film was a complete disaster. See, uh, it was such a disaster that I accidentally quoted this article before I read it. Uh, This was the worst thing to happen uh, since Jackson settled child molestation charges a decade earlier. Jackson, who was during this time taking a mix of OxyContin, Demerol, and Xanax, or whatever he could get his hands on, was shattered. He went nuts, says this associate. Uh, it was the first in a series of tantrums that would culminate him in, in him tearing apart a hotel room in Las Vegas. Around this time, Jackson went into hiding. Fellow child star Donny Osmond, an old friend, remembers getting a call from Jackson. I said to him, Mike, where are you? Osman recalls, and he said, Michael said, please don't tell anybody. I rented a touring bus and I took my kids and we're somewhere in Arizona. I said, I said, what are you doing? He said, I don't want anyone to see me. I don't want anybody to know where I'm at. But he couldn't hide forever. (laughs) Uh, If you watch this thing, it's pretty incredible. Uh, Well, one, it's pretty clear that Michael is higher than a friggin kite through the whole thing <laughs> and is just wasted yeah. at this point. Uh, at, you know, he's parading his kids around in masks so that nobody can really see their faces. At one point he's saying hi to his fans. And in doing so, he hangs his youngest son who at the time was baby blanket over the balcony. Oh, but, but he loves I, the I children. remember that. Yeah. He, and so remember yeah. that was the, that was the first thing that he got shit for. The other one was, and this is extraordinary, given what happened. There's a section of this thing where Martin Bashir confronts him saying, "Uh, this is really uncomfortable. I noticed that you were hanging out with this kid named Gavin, who (laughs) was a young boy. And was he like 12 years old, 13 years old, years old at the time. And, uh, you know, just asked him straight out, you know, I mean, are you sharing a bed with children? And talks about his relationship with with kids and the closeness. And Michael actually says, it's a beautiful thing. Now, he claims that in Gavin's case, he's on the floor in a sleeping bag and Gavin and his brother are taking the bed. 
Uh, uh-huh. But he does keep he does cop to sleeping with kids in his bed before this. Uh, he talks about his relationship with Macaulay Culkin and Macaulay Culkin's brothers and uh, sharing the bed with them at one point. And it, at one point, uh, quoting, it's very right. It's very loving. And then a few seconds later, it's what the world needs now. What's wrong with sharing? Yeah, exactly. What's what's wrong with sharing love? I mean, this in retrospect, this sounds like an advertisement for Nambla. Yeah, uh, and yeah. it goes on. Is this on YouTube? It is on YouTube. Uh, there are, if you do a uh, a YouTube search for uh, Martin Bashir, Michael Jackson, uh, somebody has it uploaded in ten parts. Uh, mm. Part nine is where it gets really, really dark, and this is where a lot of this is coming from. Uh, so yeah, go definitely go uh, check this out. But it turned so. But he goes into this whole thing about how kids have it so rough and it's a it's a horrible world. And don't we just want to hug all the kids and we just got to keep them safe. And, you know, like I said, Michael really had this idea that he was a living kid, that he was supposed to be the protector of all the children. Um, As it turns out, alleged. Remember, this is all allegations. As it turns out, this is like the pedophiles. uh, It's everybody else's fault but mine. Yeah. (laughs) Excuse. And the kid in this. in this thing, Gavin Arvizo is his name. Uh, a couple months later, uh, because Bashir was so, it was so alarming, you know, the, the Santa Barbara County uh, police start investigating this and they start talking to the kid, <laughs> you know, and, and probing. And it comes out a few months later, you know, Gavin's like, yeah, you know, he's been getting me drunk and masturbating me or whatever for a while. And Jesus. they keep investigating. They, uh, they did a search warrant on uh, Neverland Ranch and in mid-November of 2003, Michael is arrested on molestation charges. And so he's finally actually facing criminal charges for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so, again, so this this documentary, which, again, is just fascinatingly creepy. Uh, Michael, no self-awareness whatsoever. And, again, higher than a kite, you know, basically <laughs> admits that he might as well be a child molester without saying it. Uh, and then a couple of years later, we get into the next uh, chapter, which is the trial. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in uh, chapter four. This happens in 2005. Uh, really disgusting spectacle in the sense of it's a sensationalized trial in the vein of like a OJ. Uh, the, they did not let the cameras in the cam- in the courtroom. Uh, that's the only difference. But uh, it was one witness after another that had no credibility. Be- why? Because everybody made money off this thing. Yep. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, talk to talk to the maid. Well, the maid, had, I, you know, or the butler or somebody had the limo driver. One of those folks had uh, been paid like fifty thousand dollars by the National Enquirer to be an anonymous source <laughs> at one point, <laughs> you know, and just there was stuff like that. There were, you know, folks that were signing non-disclosure agreements or whatever, you know, like, you know, I'll give you two hundred thousand dollars to go away and or parents. You know, this is the, the worst part is, you know, the sort of the the. Uh, business associates with kids and all that. And so everybody was making money from somewhere. And so nobody had any credibility and the jury had no choice, but to acquit uh, Michael. Yeah. uh, Another point, like we said, if, if you are in the right industry with the right backing and you got a lot of money, uh, you can get away with a lot of this shit. Yeah. Yeah. See Harvey Weinstein. See. Yeah, I know. I hear what you're saying. What what shocks me is that after this, you still had these blind 
or willingly, willfully blind Michael Jackson fan saying, no, no, he's not a pedophile. He really is a Peter Pan figure. He really is a, yeah. an overgrown little kid. And there are people out there who fucking believe this shit. They believed it. I know. And, and look, and I'm glad you brought that up because for me, look, I, I have been the Michaelologist in this series of episodes. And it's hard for me. I mean, I've talked about this. He was my yeah. musical hero growing up. I mean, I had uh, Thriller on vinyl, and my father was a huge Thriller fan. We played that vinyl so much, we practically like just tore the needle through it. Uh, and so being a uh, an admirer of Michael, growing up on that music, growing up on those videos, uh, the guy was a performance hero. He literally was a hero to all, a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know... To repeat something I've said in a couple episodes, like what would happen if you actually got to meet your heroes? Would they still beat your heroes? Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. And so I, I never wanted to believe it. I mean, it's still shocking. I still don't like thinking about it. Um, and I'll make a, maybe it's a little bit of a leap, but it comes from the same place. Like Woody Allen, uh, this idea yeah. of how do we separate the art from the artist? Can we do it? Um, and I think we all want to, to the point where, to your point, Arturo, that a lot of people were still, you know, like, remember he never dropped off in Europe. He never dropped off in Asia. And, you know, he was getting like a shitload of money from like sheiks in Bahrain and Dubai <laughs> you know, to, go, to go do private shows, you know? And so there were these people that believed in Michael because he was a special artist, a special musician, a special public figure. And like I said, you know, Woody, uh, you know, it took him three years before me Too got him. Yeah. Uh, but, and so that's the thing it's, it's, you know, we want to believe in the art, not the artist. I mean, and this is nothing new. Roman Polanski, you know, can't come back in the U S <laughs> because right. he, he drugged and raped a 13 year old apparently, but, yeah. or Bill Cosby. It's the same thing. Yeah. I don't want to believe anything about Bill Cosby. Uh, so there is that hero worship, but. I mean, and to this day, it still maintains Michael. I mean, uh, the Eagles album is ahead of him now as far as the greatest selling album of all time. But Thriller, he still gets millions of downloads. Sure. Uh, his, his estate still makes profit every year, not just from the Beatles catalog. Uh, best thing he ever did financially, by the way, was die. Because uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> he stopped spending all his money. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Again, so. Art versus artist, and this is that's where it gets complicated. But that's really the story of Michael. So now, Mike, Michael, financial problems. Speaking of financial problems, yeah. Well, that's that's what happens here. Is that you know he's been he's been living on the edge. You know he he was a spendthrift, like a, a spendthrift, spendthrifts, like buying ridiculous shit. You know, uh, like Neverland. Buying Neverland in the first place was crazy, but then you know putting the zoo and the roller coaster and all that. And, you know, he's he's an exorbitant spender and he's he's like nine figures in debt. Like, yeah, you know, he's he's as bad as Donald Trump. Um, almost not quite. Mm. But he he's in that he's in that uh, boat. Uh, if it wasn't for owning the Beatles publishing rights, he probably would have had to declare bankruptcy or, you know, people would have you know <laughs> stopped funding him. Uh, but, you know, he's going broker and broker and he's having to do these things like, um uh, you know, play for you know, sheiks over in the Middle East. And uh, I guess apparently he was so disgusted uh, over the, the the coverage of 
the, this uh, molestation trial that he had to abandon Neverland and go back there because it was toxic. Uh, real Jeez. reason, real reason is he was, I think the real reason is he probably thought he was going to get foreclosed on <laughs> and didn't want the, didn't want the embarrassment of, you know, having the camera show up while he's getting evicted. Um, so yeah, he's, he's, he's broke, broke. And, you know, he, like you said, he, he had to, uh, basically, is, is this is true. I think, I think, you know, this, and I think I saw this where he basically had a second mortgage Neverland to yeah. keep himself out of trouble with one of the banks. Yep. And he, you know, so the idea, and he had to borrow, like three hundred million dollars to uh, to keep going, and so he, ac- kind of- he, he actually he actually lived in Bahrain for a little while in the house of Sheikh, the house of the son of Sheikh Abdullah. Yep. <laughs> well, well, that that was a thing. He essentially last few years of his life he uh, he lived most of the time internationally. Yeah. Know, anybody who would take him in, because he wanted to stay the hell out of L.A. and he would come back once in a while. Now. Main reason he came back at the end of his life uh, is because he. Uh, this is when you know he's broke, uh, as has been covered. Yeah. He agrees to do this residency at the O2 uh, in London. It was originally going to be, I believe, five shows. It was going to be like five or ten shows, right? And he was going to do these you know, like big elaborate, you know, Michael Jackson type shows with like you know a thousand dancers and yeah. fireworks and. You know, big ass TV screens and all that kind of crazy shit. Uh, but it sold so well that it turned out it was going to be a fifty uh, show residency. Uh, Lots and, of money. Yeah, two hundred, two a whopping. I think I read right here it's between two hundred and three hundred million dollars. Yes, which you know, to put this in context, um, at this point, I think the most he had making off made off a tour was dangerous which was $150 million. And that is at a point where he was actually still had hits where he wasn't, uh, he was, he, he was a kind of an oddity and he was being ostracized, but he was not a pariah at that point. And he's making $150 million. Now he is a pariah and stands to make 300 million to make twice as much. (laughs) Well, it also also helps that it's not a touring a touring show. It's no. one venue all the way. Yeah. So, so you're right. saving money. You know? Yeah. 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 You're doing that. So it's profitable as hell. I mean, essentially it's the equivalent of like, if he played Vegas, the, the difference being is right. O2, O2 is a huge arena as opposed to like, you know, fucking Caesar's palace. Right. Um, but so 50 show residency, keep in mind. Now this is a guy who's horribly whacked out on drugs. And even if he wasn't uh, because of all the dancing, he's destroyed his back like his back was like literally like destroyed, uh, bad knees, you know, all that kind of stuff, arthritis and, and everything like that. And so given the physical demands of it, was that guy really going or to tell me, do you really think he would have gotten through 50 shows? No, I don't think he would have gotten through like 10. I mean, think about it. Like, like he started his, 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 uh, his, his painkiller addiction with morphine. And after he had, you know, his scalp was singed Yeah, and then, that made him. That made him an addict. And now, like you said, arthritis, back pain, knee problems, more pills. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Well, this. Well, it's not even pills at this point, which we'll get into in a bit. Uh, like he's like he's just whacked out uh, at this point. But 
And if you go back in the early part of the Curmudgeon Rock Report's wonderful catalog of episodes, uh, we did an episode on our favorite or what we think are the best rock and roll movies. And I covered the uh, the Michael documentary, uh, uh, This Is It. Right. Uh, which it's footage taken of the rehearsal that he did for uh, these O2 shows the day before he died. And it is astonishing. Uh, you know, say what you want. Would he have gotten through the 50 shows? Maybe, maybe not. But that guy was still working his ass off and was still superhuman. Again, you're talking about a frail, uh, drug-addicted 50-year-old guy. He was two months from turning 51. And you see him in this footage, and he's doing the he's doing a dance routine to want to be starting something, but the want to be starting something is played even faster than it is on the record. Like it's a super fast version of want to be starting something. And he's just, he's dancing along, doing the crazy steps and all of that. And then he stops and says, no, I'm not really feeling that. It's got to be funkier. So <laughs> he yeah. still has the work ethic. He's still pushing himself. He's still doing things that other people can't do. Uh, just as I don't want to go through the whole thing because I did it in that episode. But the one line that stays with me is Michael's own music director saying, dude, nobody hears what you hear. So you tell me what you want and I'll do it. I'm not going to direct you. You direct me. Right. <laughs> you know, and so he's still at the top of his form. Like I said, the guy is he's working his ass off. He's showing his brilliance, all of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just health wise and where out where he is, it's it's kind of like, how the hell is he doing this? Because it's the next day that uh, is the tragedy, which we'll yeah. get into now. Uh, that was uh, Michael died at 50 years old uh, in uh, uh, Southern California, the Los Angeles area, on June 25th, 2009. Uh, to the world's shock and amazement, the thing that killed him was that he had a licensed doctor, a guy named Conrad Murray, who was administering a drug known as propofol uh, to Michael uh, uh, through shots or intravenously, one of the two. Or, you know, basically, uh, Michael's laying there and the propofol is being administered. Uh, propofol is an anesthesia, a very mm. powerful anesthesia. So not only is Michael dealing, he's not only taking drugs for pain, turns out he can't sleep either. <laughs> Jeez. And so, and is resorting to anesthesia to do this. God. And so what happens is, is Murray through whatever negligence or whatever is going on, uh, overdoses Michael. Mm. And it's one of these things where, uh, instead of like calling nine one one or calling for other help, uh, he's like, you know, talking to the maid, he's calling the lawyers, <laughs> uh, he being Murray, he's calling everybody except the people he's supposed to be calling. Uh, and yeah, there you go. Uh, Michael has died of an anesthesia overdose. Jeez. Uh, he also had uh, a couple of uh, anti-anxiety meds uh, in his system. Uh, Ativan was one of them. Midazolam, I believe, was another one as well. So, you know, he's got a nice cocktail in there, but it's the propofol. So he's that far gone. Obviously, this became a huge scandal. Uh, Murray was brought up on, uh, on negligent homicide, homicide charges, manslaughter charges, and I believe was convicted. Uh, but it also starts off this kerfuffle for Michael's money uh, with his family. I mean, there's 
Vanity Fair article that I read on another one of these uh, episodes where uh, Latoya and Janet and uh, his mom are going in to secure the uh, bag of cash that he kept under his oh, bed yeah. to, make, to make sure that the brothers didn't steal it. Jeez. Uh, that's how bad this was. And uh, also in the same Vanity Fair article, I mean, poor Janet. Uh, Janet was saying how like, you know, Michael and Janet were basically the bank for all the other <laughs> <laughs> we're all, all, all the other siblings and so yeah. they they were constantly having to fight these pathetic you know pieces of shit off i mean it's hey tito if you're listening i'm sorry uh but you know these 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 kid these guys and you know and hit, they're bugging his mom and you know i mean poor Catherine jackson she's she's inherited all the money and you know and it's uh, she's basically the executor and the gatekeeper and you know and so she has to take care of uh prince and blanket and uh, and Paris, uh, the kids, while dealing with all this stuff, the, you know, the uh, you know, settling up the debts and the bills, dealing with the kids and the family feuds and and all of that. And so uh, it is sad, but true. Uh, the best thing that Michael ever did for his profitability as a as an industry or as a business was die. Uh, <laughs> because, again, it's, you know, uh, Michael Jackson estate still makes still makes a lot of money. And then one, one last thing I want to go into, it's from the same article by Brian Hyatt that ran in uh, 2009 and kind of as a last word that was, you know, showed how sad things had gotten. So uh, quoting from that article, uh, quote unquote, outside of the world of show business where we, he would, Michael was savvy enough to become the world's biggest singer and make a business move as brilliant as buying the Beatles publishing catalog. Jackson's self image was pathologically distorted. Quote, he saw himself as a child. He really, really did, says a music industry source who worked with him. Quote, it was dangerous. I don't think he had the appropriate boundaries that as an adult would an adult would have as a child because he didn't see himself as an adult. Was he having these sleepovers? Absolutely. He didn't deny it. He said there's nothing wrong with him sleeping with boys. In the course of that, might there have been some fondling? Probably. I don't know. I wasn't there. But the point is, his state of mind was really like a child. Uh, he was a peer to these kids. I know that disgusts a lot of people, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I'm saying as a fact, that really was his state of mind. On this episode, Chris and I close the book on the two male icons of 1980s pop music and how their importance transcended the decades they dominated. For the next episode... We'll examine the music of another pair of artists, albeit much, much less commercially successful. This pair, however, were a collaborative duo who produced a series of folk rock masterpieces from 1974 to 1982 that influenced a litany of major artists and bands and continue to do so today. More importantly, these albums stand out as timeless works, as much or even more so than many of their contemporaries of their time. Listen in as the curmudgeons examine Richard and Linda Thompson, a legacy. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Okay, so folks... We have completed the Michael story of this year, Prince versus Michael Jackson uh, saga. And we end with uh, Prince's uh, 2000s, uh, his last 16 years of life. Uh, 
Arturo, uh, tell us about uh, late stage prints and your impressions of uh, all that happened. Well, the last decade and a half of Prince's life and career did not get the publicity that Michael Jackson's did. There were no fights with the record label. Prince got that over with in the previous decade. Uh, um, no image rehabilita- rehabilitative documentaries that backfired and made him look worse. No lawsuits, no financial problems, and no charges of pedophilia. The only real, um, uh, the only real media attention Prince got when he started the Naughties was that he went back to his name as Prince. He ditched the symbol because uh, the publishing deal that he had with Warner Brothers, um, I believe it was called, uh, I forgot the name of it. Anyway, the, the publishing contract with Warner Brothers expired in May 2000. So it resulted in him going back to his name as a recording and touring artist. And that was big news for a little bit, especially for major Prince fans um, as the new decade started. But instead... Prince, in his middle age, settled into a steady routine of recording and touring. Um, his, his albums didn't sell in the quantities that they used to, but they still sold consistently well and decently well and charted in the top 10 most of the time. And they were bought by his significantly large hardcore fan base, by which point it became really hardcore. Yes. Uh, uh, These numbers went down once paid streaming overtook paid downloads and physical media. But that's another discussion for another time regarding another topic. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, However, it was during the noughties that his status as an unparalleled live performer solidified his standing in the pantheon of all time great pop stars selling out arenas all over the world while Michael Jackson was preoccupied with battling the media and destroying his face, literally and figuratively. Yep. Uh, this is when Prince gracefully settled into the role of pop music elder statesman and finally became at peace with his iconic status. Here's the thing, though. Aside from being that pop elder statesman, it's the naughties when Prince started to become started to become a cool name to name check among oh, younger yeah. artists in the pop R and B and even the hip hop spheres. I mean, it's really hard to imagine acts such as Outkast, Beyonce, Alicia Keys, Usher, The Roots, Justin Timberlake, even Kanye mm. West without Prince influencing them in some substantial way or form. Yeah. You know, so, um, and anyway, and, yeah. yeah. And, well, it's interesting worth mentioning, uh, on that t- topic where all of a sudden, you know, like Prince being this sort of celebrated oddball, uh, it was really Chappelle that started this, that, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that Chappelle show bit with, uh, yeah. uh Pr- Prince and his guys playing Charlie Murphy and his guys in basketball and then having the pancakes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that after that, there was this flood of, uh, uh, one confirmation of that story from Eddie Murphy, uh, he who, yeah. confir- who confirmed it, but uh, but also like you started to get all kinds of other oddball stories uh, yeah. after that, and then even after his death, uh, uh, go on YouTube. There's a wonderful after he died. There's a wonderful story that Jimmy Fallon and Questlove tell about Prince <laughs> challenging uh, Fallon to a game of ping pong uh, <laughs> at, at some basement club in New York. 
Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it, 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 it's beautiful, but anyway, so yeah. Prince was, Prince was a weird guy who had a lot of fun. And, uh, but like you said, it became, like you said, a cool name drop that, yeah. you know, oh, like, totally. I hung out at Prince's house and like drank Mai Tais and, and did some bowling or, you know, like <laughs> think of weird shit. And there was all this, yeah. all these weird stories about Prince, but yeah. go ahead. Anyway, but before we do the customary run through yes. of his prolific discography during the 2000s and 2010s, which I will do, let's take a look at two specific live performances Correct. that dropped people's jaws and shined, showing him to be the pop god that he was. All right. The first one was in March 2004, and this was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Prince was one of the three most prominent names who were inducted, along with ZZ Top and George Harrison as a solo artist, the latter having already been inducted several years earlier as a member of the Beatles. Uh, Outcast and Alicia Keys did the induction speech after a typically tight Prince performance where he played a few of his big hits, you know, Let's Go Crazy and Kiss being among them. He gave a brief, rather modest, yet touching speech and he went off on his way. However, it was what happened at the end of the show that will always be remembered, thanks to YouTube, of course. Uh, George Harrison was scheduled to be the last person inducted. He died of cancer three years earlier. And his son, Donnie, Donnie as in D-H-A-N-I, not Donald, <laughs> um, was to accept the award for him. Afterward, the producers of the show had scheduled an all-star band uh, jam, uh, including Tom Petty, uh, Steve Winwood, and Jeff Lynne of ELO fame, and Donnie himself. And they were to perform a selection of Harrison's songs. The producers insisted that Prince be a part of this lineup, and so he was in. Now, Donnie Harrison has recounted this story several times throughout the years to both fellow musicians and writers, so this is corroborated. Um, after it was announced to the, to the crack band that uh, Prince would come on stage to join the others during their performance of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Harrison's uh, soaring ballad from the Beatles' White Album, for those who don't know or don't know albums, uh, uh, Donnie approached Prince for a chat. Um, he came away from you know, rather cordial, polite chat with the impression that Prince was going to try to steal the show with some fireworks, uh, fireworks guitar soloing. Uh, he then relayed this information to Tom Petty, the impromptu band leader for this event. And in Petty's typically laid back, insouciant manner, he just brushed it off. <laughs> whatever, whatever, man. You know. Anyway, it's a good thing he did. Because what followed was one of the single greatest performances in the history of the Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Um, Prince came in for the climactic solo at the end of the song. Eric Clapton did it for the original back in 1968, for those yep. trivia buffs out there. And he proceeded to unleash a solo of sneering, snarling, nasty intensity that on camera... You can see Donnie Harrison caught off guard. Yeah. As he could do he could do nothing but laugh nervously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is what like, he was I, hearing. Yeah, it's <laughs> like I can't I can't believe that Prince is actually playing this well on my dad's song. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And yet, for as visceral as the solo was, 
a testament to Prince's singular brilliance as a guitar player was that he maintained the level of authentic emotion required to not just deliver the song, but bring it home. Yeah. And uh, regardless, um, Prince's solo was so powerful that while everyone else on stage was paying tribute to Harrison, it seemed that Prince was paying tribute to Hendrix, yeah. know, uh, who Harrison idolized, by the way. But anyway, yeah. um, after the performance ended, Prince seemingly took off his guitar and threw it into the audience in one fell swoop and then literally strutted off the stage like JJ yeah. from Good Times. But, but, but <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it's actually better than that. So like, so Prince, you know, his face, you know, he doesn't like belie any sort of emotion. It's just like, you know, Prince, you know, my impression of that is, okay, it's like, oh, you, you want me to play him while my guitar gently weeps? Okay, fine. And he's just doing it like a pro. I mean, I'm just going to go up yeah. here and do what I do, go with the song. I'll get caught up in the moment. But the visual, and it's amazing. Uh, so he finishes the song. He does this like, you know how he could, he could do that thing with the shoulder strap thing where it kind of spins yeah. around? He yeah. does that, takes it off, throws the guitar in the air. The next <laughs> shot is is him walking off the stage. And it's like, what happened to the fucking guitar? <laughs> it landed like it landed probably like way off into the audience no, or something. I mean or no no it's dude if you look at the video he throws it he's straight up in the air vertical <laughs> and so and then two seconds later no guitar and so he, so I'm assuming there was somebody up there that was just that was catching it and taking it or whatever yeah. but like literally you look at the thing and okay just plays it all cool throws the thing in the air walks off stage guitar never comes down i mean this this, this, this. I, I i always assume that the guitar went way into the audience off camera nope uh maybe it did but if you look at it it looks like it's going straight up in the air like it would have <laughs> like it, it would have come down on his head or like a foot in front of him or two feet behind him or you know it, he didn't hurl it uh no throws it just vertically in the air and two seconds later they do a long shot no guitar. So, you know, I mean, dude, I mean, Prince had talent on loan from God. Apparently he had a guitar on loan from God too. And so yeah. it's just, he looks like this thing that's from outer space. He's up there with like the most like boring, like, you know, Petty and Jeff Lynn and I, they're all like, you know, plaid wearing kind of guys, you know? Yeah. And so he's like this alien playing with these guys, obviously way better than all of them. Like you said, Donnie's, right. Donnie's laughing. Cause he's like, yeah. oh, and he's probably thinking, oh, oh dad would have loved this shit. <laughs> and, and in the modern COVID world, there's a part of me that wants to think that Donnie was thinking, fuck you, Eric Clapton, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, I really yeah. want to believe that, but yeah, that is one of the single greatest pieces of video ever. Uh, yeah. and so we implore you to do Prince George Harrison. You probably don't even have to type in more than that and it'll come. No, right no, up. All you gotta do is type Prince hall of fame, 2004 <laughs> or, or just Prince George Harrison. I, it'll be yeah. the first thing that comes up. Right. Uh, so marvelous thing. Now talk about the second, uh, one the of the second one fast forward three years later to February, 2007 for the special halftime performance of super bowl 41. Now, let me just say that I fucking despise super bowl halftime shows. Me too. I hate them. They're indulgent, they're bloated, they're corporatized, they're usually obnoxiously lip-synced, and they're just overall fucking stupid. They're stupid, they and they're phony. And they're phony. And they represent everything that's wrong 
with America's ridiculously exaggerated sense of self-worth and its perverse obsession with celebrating it. And uh, if, it's and it, it basically is, uh, if there's parties to blame, Michael Jackson is is probably the main oh, guy to blame. Cause I'll, he, get to, he, I'll, I'll get to that. Because he did it first, but go ahead. Yeah. If American football as a sport is the country's true national pastime, then the Super Bowl halftime show is the country's true national rest time, meaning it is the world's greatest justification to go to the bathroom and take the longest shit possible and maybe throw a good wank off in there for good measure. That, that being said, it took a genius artist of the caliber of Prince to take an exercise in gross, self-congratulatory, typically American ego-sucking and make something moving and powerful and give it a modicum of depth. Now, here we go. It starts off bad enough. The Florida A&M University marching band comes onto the field doing <laughs> Queens We Will Rock You. Predict <laughs> predictable and just about that. Yeah, yeah. Predictable and just yuck. However, something happens. First, a real thunderstorm goes off over the stadium, meaning real rain will come down very soon. And real lightning. Yeah. So, hmm, maybe there is a God and maybe he or she hates Super Bowl halftime shows as much as I do. But there you anyway, go. anyway, off go some flames and a huge stage shaped like Prince's patented love symbol emerges with Prince doing the opening exhortation to Purple Rain's Let's Go Crazy. Now, listen, I'm talking to someone who didn't feel an ounce of anything when Whitney Houston sang the national anthem right after, right before the Super Bowl in 1991. I didn't give a shit about that. I'm not a fan of national anthems and sporting events either, unless they're international competitions, but that's a different conversation. There you go. Even I have to admit, my nostalgic side got the best of me seeing his purple badness gearing up for what felt like an actual honest to goodness, great performance. He sang for real. He played for real. His guitar was on fire and it actually sounded great. Not even typically silly crowd pleasing vamps of, are we going to go crazy? Seemed out of whack, you know. Let's go crazy segues into the keyboard intro, intro to 1999. And then it surprisingly segues into a shockingly good version of Baby I'm a Star, where unbelievably the marching band does not seem out of place. <laughs> um, this is the true beginning of the medley that transitions to Creedence Clearwater Revival's Proud Mary, but done as the funky, soulful Ike and Tina Turner version. Again, the marching band adds and doesn't detract. Then everything stops on a dime. Then guitar riffage comes back for a perversely and quote unquote perversely is the only adverb that I can use to describe this. A bluesy snippet of Bob Dylan's all along the watchtower. <laughs> um, he was probably cha channeling the Hendrix version here as well. And, and played brilliantly. Though. And played brilliantly. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that seemingly segues into the Foo Fighters' big hit, The Best of You. Now, let's pause here. The most impressive thing about this performance is not just that Prince took an otherwise horrendous Foo Fighters song and made it listenable. It's that he actually made chicken salad out of chicken shit and made an actual good song 
out of one of the most maudlin pieces of crap Dave Grohl ever wrote. And there are a lot of them. Yeah. All I was right. going to say that's um, saying something. <laughs> I mean, Prince's version manages to have 10 times more soul and actually rocks harder. Anyway, back to the performance. Prince's guitar has rarely sounded this loud and guttural and just downright nasty. Um, the only other instrumentation throughout this whole gig is a drum kit, a keyboard set, and marching band horns. And even that is pushing it a bit as to being too much clutter getting in the way of Prince's voice no, and it, guitar. It, no, it wasn't. Uh, no. Didn't he play Johnny B. Good? By, no, he didn't. He didn't. I thought he played a Chuck Berry song in there. Um don't think he did. No, but anyway, I know he did it in no. the Vegas. The Vegas review he did it. I thought okay. he, I thought he did it during that performance. But go ahead. Yeah. Anyway, the song ends, and as actual rain is coming down, he launches into one of his greatest ballads and one of the greatest songs ever written, "Purple Rain." The marching band tastefully only comes in toward the closing coda of the song. That na 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 that part, right? Yes. After Prince launches into a short but walloping solo with one of the most aggressive tones he's ever conjured out of the guitar, sounding not too far away from another legendary Minneapolis guitarist, Bob Mould of the legendary punk band Husker Du. Um, in a mesmerizing and emotional performance, Prince bought genuine, brought genuine feeling and artistry to the otherwise dreary Super Bowl halftime show tradition by doing the opposite of what was and still is usually done. It was actually a minimalist performance with little instrumentation, relying on restraint and utilizing release only in select situations. Yeah. Uh, it was a classic case of doing more with less. You could argue that for this one time, the Super Bowl actually opened for Prince. Yeah. Uh, some, th some thoughts about that. Uh, like you're right about the smoothness and well, it was professional. It was smooth. It was confident, but it was the Super Bowl. But, you, but you also have to put this in context. Like you said, uh, it's at the stadium there in Miami and it's pouring rain. He's in this, what must've been like a crushed velvet, light blue suit, Yeah, you know, like this really fancy looking suit. Uh, you're on this stage, which had to have been slippery as hell. He's got these twins, these twin ladies that in what must've been like eight inch, nine inch heels, right. Or like, yeah, these these enormously tall heels doing their dance routine. Again, right. in these skinny ass tall heels in the pouring rain on a slick stage, they do not miss anything. There's no twitches. It's all smooth. Prince just does his thing. He's got, you know, at one point they do a close up during purple rain. He's got raindrops dripping off his chin. He yeah. must have he must have had makeup. So I can I can't even imagine how he kept the suit clean and all of that. And so he's doing this. He's playing a real electric guitar in the pouring rain <laughs> with, yeah. with the threat of lightning. Uh, and again, like you said, playing for real. And he just rocked the fuck out. Like you said, yeah. he does that little piece of uh, best of you. Uh, like you said, he has that all along the watchtower. I thought, and maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I thought that he had the Chuck Berry thing in there, but that was, Part, he he was the reason he was doing this part of his motivation was later on that year i think it was that spring or the summer he launched a 
a residency in Las Vegas where essentially mm, he was yeah. doing an old time rock and roll review. It's one of the great visual feats, I think, right. in the history of rock and roll. And like you said, it's the Super Bowl. It's the cheesiest thing. It's the biggest sellout thing you can do when he makes it work. The only one of the Super Bowl performances that ever came close to that was U2's five years later. But that's largely yeah. for sentimental reasons because it was right after September 11th. And they and they also played for real. But no, nowhere. Not, not, not five, five years earlier, you mean? Five years earlier. Did I say later? Yeah, you said later. Okay, well, okay, back to the future, bitch. Uh, okay, so 2002. Uh, yeah, and so it's the only thing that even comes close to Prince, but I'm, I'm telling you, it was like something out of like a Japanese monster movie or something. Yeah. I mean, you would have thought that Kurosawa came up with this. You know, it was <laughs> it was crazy. It was uh, uh, one of the greatest things I've ever seen on TV. And yeah. uh, really and cement. By, yeah. And by the way, by the way, as long as we're keeping score of points sure. in regard to the Prince versus Michael Jackson rivalry, uh Prince's Super Bowl halftime show blows away Michael's from 1993. Even I would that. And by a large and by a large margin. And so this is this is for those of you keeping score, these are more points in Prince's tally. And by this time I think he's ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I would say so. Well, I mean, in terms of Super Bowl, well, in terms of quantity, yeah. Um, at this point, like Michaels, if I had a rank of Michaels is the third best Super Bowl uh, halftime performance, which is not saying much, but, uh, it was a really, you know, all things considered, he invented the, the template for it. It was really a uh, great performance, but no, but it was badly lip synced, <laughs> you know, very, very badly lip synced as in like, you know, like, uh, uh, dubbed Italian softcore porn, bad, uh, yeah. uh, uh lip syncing, but. Right. Uh, yeah, but Prince blows him out of the the water uh, the water here. So yeah, Michael invented the template. Prince did it way 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 better than anybody could ever imagine it could be done. All right, now we reach to the point of the Prince retrospective when we get into the albums. All right, uh, cue the Benny Hill music or the Lone Ranger music. I think it's more appropriate. <laughs> or or the Lone Ranger music. Uh, we, we we do not have a copyright or a license on either. But go ahead. Starting in 1995, Prince started releasing his multitude of albums, mostly through his own NPG record label. And from the turn of the decade onward, it was exclusively through MPG, with distribution deals alternating between certain major labels here and there. So let's begin the quick hit run-through sprint of all of Prince's albums from 2001 through the end of his life. As you can imagine, with someone who is so prolific, the quality widely varied yeah that's why you they did you the listener have us curmudgeons to sift through filler and find the killer in this quite underrated actually and overlooked period of prince's career yes let us begin now okay 2001 the rainbow children this marks the beginning of what I call Prince's very brief esoteric period, meaning he merges uh, high lyrical concepts with a kind of jazz funk fusion that he has always threatened to make up to this point. This one is the best of, the, of that bunch. It's a concept album that serves as a meditation on the history of the African-American experience that incorporates themes of spirituality, sexuality, and of course, racism. It holds together surprisingly well. Standout tracks, the jazz, funk, rock mashout of Family Name, which even though comes toward the end of the record, it can easily serve as the album's lyrical mission statement and theme. 
You got the luscious funk of destruction and the ferocious funk jam and a black solidarity anthem of the everlasting now. This is a good one. Uh, bookmark this one. Next, 2002, One Night Alone. This was released only to members of Prince's NPG Music Club, hence why it didn't chart. This is also where you come to if you want to hear Prince in intimate solo voice and solo piano mode. Interesting cover. His purple badness takes on Joni Mitchell with his version of A Case of You. Hmm. So if you're into that side of Prince, check that out. Otherwise, eh, nothing special. Next, 2003, he had two albums. The first one, Expectation. The first of two all-instrumental jazz fusion albums that Prince would release this year. Uh, very much in the flavor of the 1970s musical excursions of Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Weather Report. It's surprisingly rather dull and lifeless. Um, best appreciated by musicians who are obsessed with complexity. So yeah, you can kind of skip this one. Uh, the next one. 2003, same year, like I said, News, or N-E-W-S. It's the second jazz fusion album of the year, and this one's better. Um, I guess Prince's out there experiments are best when he keeps a bit of the funk and a bit of the rock in the mix. Uh, standout track, the third track, West. Um, the other three songs are titled North, South, and East. <laughs> N-E-W-S. Oh, he, he's so clever. Uh, yeah. So this one's okay. This, 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 this one's the more interesting of the two jazz fusion albums. All right. Next, 2004, Musicology. I'll talk a little bit more about this. This is the year Prince gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's also the year, not surprisingly, Prince finally decides to get back in touch with the mainstream audience with his official comeback album. Its intent tipped off by the fact that Columbia Records distributed the album. It was commercially successful, peaking at number three in both the UK and US charts, uh, going double platinum in the US. It also garnered a few R&B Grammy Awards and winning two, both for his vocal performance, underscoring that beyond being a dazzling multi-instrumentalist, he was also an incredible singer. Um, in retrospect, though, it isn't really that good. Uh, it, it sounds less like Peak Prince and more like a facsimile of Peak Prince. Um, one cannot escape the feeling that he's just going through the motions here, like your boy Michael did in 2001. You know, um, Even Mojo Magazine offered that it was better produced and performed than it was actually written. Uh, nevertheless, even a mediocre Prince album still has some great songs. Yeah. Uh, Jason, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. One, one, one thing to mention, though, that uh, unlike Michael, though, what Michael had all the pressure in the world on his shoulders. And so yeah. he was trying to make uh, the most like pristine thing like he actually was trying. Yeah. He thought he just was artistically yeah. bankrupt, whereas at that point yeah. uh, Prince was just basically playing with house money. Uh, exactly. That's the, that's the difference. It's like both of them had nothing in the tank, but there were different motivations. So true. Worth, worth pointing Very out. good. Very good point. Now, the good songs on Musicology, the title track, Musicology, is funkier than an elephant's foreskin, and it mixes in vintage 
Prince in the mid '80s synth stabs, really the best song in the whole thing. Um, Dear Mr. Man is a slow jam funk that serves as Prince's most poignant and sharpest attack to date, mind you, on socioeconomic inequality, especially in the African American community, and contrasting it with. Uh, all the government money being spent on the military and the futility of the two-party system. Yes, Prince jams a lot into this song. Um, this is especially poignant considering 04 was the election year when George W. Bush was reelected. However, an addendum to Prince's 2004, for those of you out there, he released two more albums, The Chocolate Invasion and The Slaughterhouse, during this year that were available solely through his NPG Music Club website. I admit I haven't heard these, but I'm sure the albums in their entirety are on YouTube. Listeners, please feel free to provide your own input on these albums or any other Prince albums mentioned on this or any other episode in the Prince versus Michael Jackson series via email at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or via Twitter at, at curmudgeonpod. Yeah, <laughs> it bears mentioning, by the way, that that nobody monetized the Internet like Prince. Uh, no, he, he, he taught everybody how to uh, up until his death. Uh, if you ever tried to find Prince songs on YouTube, if you ever wondered why he couldn't do it. It's because the guy had the, the single greatest copyright police in the history of the world. And yeah. so there's a reason the guy was worth nine figures when he died. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> yeah. he actually knew what he was doing from the very, very, very beginning and stuff like this. The, you know, like the fan club kind of model through the Internet. Right. Uh, he was just a master of, of that yeah. kind of stuff. Oh, totally. go ahead. Yeah. All right. Next, 2006, 3121. His first U.S. number one album on the Billboard chart since the Batman soundtrack. No shit. In 1989. This is a marked improvement from musicology. This is way better. Uh, elements of the jazz fusion excursions of the early noughties are melded to the traditional Prince-esque musical tropes of musicology and bolsters the mix with much better, much stronger, much more inspired songwriting. Standout tracks. The infectious and indelible synth soul pop of Lolita, where Prince warns the underage girl, Lolita, you're sweeter, but you'll never make a cheetah out of me. So yeah, he kind of he 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 doesn't have sex with the underage girl. Good he for makes him. It sure. <laughs> um, the best single from the album, Black Sweat, is a steamy electro funk sex jam and was a genuine hit charting at number 60 on the Billboard Hot 100 and charting high in several European countries. And of course, the other great song is Satisfied, a beautiful, luscious, old-school R&B love jam. Next, 2007, Planet Earth. This is his most streamlined pop-for-a-pop-marketplace album in quite some time. As Robert Criscow, one of this podcast's favorite music writers, Correct. put in his, in his review for MSN Music at the time, he said, quote, This album is Viva Las Vegas and later for Viagra, but not never. Uh, Whatever that means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. Um, like most albums that are blatantly commercial, it's only the singles that warrant attention. Uh, guitar, the lead-off single, is indelible pop rock with one of the simplest yet catchiest guitar lines Prince has ever come up with. Chelsea Rogers pulses with a pure disco funk that predates, predates Daft Punk's immensely popular retro disco revival by six years and should have been a huge hit. 
suddenly and seriously dude it's better than daft punks get lucky i'm yeah, not no, I, I i don't doubt it uh i certainly don't doubt it yeah next 2009 lotus flower as well as mpls sound and elixir now before you go oh no another triple album of mostly filler and outtakes let me state that this isn't really a triple album in the unified three records as one statement sense, a la The Clash's Sandinista. What it really is, is a set of three different albums that were sold together, hence why each disc was given a different name. Kind of like a box so, set, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. so why did he decide to release this music in this way? He never said why. I have no idea. His name is Prince and he is funky. And he's a weird guy. I mean, and and, and at this point, you know, the the good thing about not being beholden to being a, like he used to put it being a slave to a label is you do whatever the fuck you want. And I think Prince, I think Prince just kind of, uh, in some ways, like Prince had a mischievous side to him. And so I, I almost wonder if like half the stuff he did, especially in this late period, he just was doing it to just fuck with people and just, you know, make them wonder. Sure, sure. There was always that. Prince always liked to shock people. Anyway, mm-hmm. Lotus Flower is by far the standout album of this three-album set. Leave it to Prince to save his finest record of the naughties for the end of the naughties. There you go. This is a great, great album. Um, it's his fourth straight album to debut in the top three of the Billboard album chart. And he interestingly goes back to the jazz fusion ventures in the early part of the decade and goes a step further from the news album. On that album, the latter, he injected his brand of jazz fusion with a bit of funk and rock to sweeten it up. With Lotus Flower, Prince the Mad Musical Scientist decides to give his jazz funk a bit of a Purple Majesty overdose meaning the whole gamut of his irresistible and unique R&B, soul, funk, rock, blues hybrid style. So it's that with a little bit of the jazz fusion. And the result is a musically consistent and unified album that seamlessly flows from one track to the other, mixing jazzy pieces, love jams, sex jams, funk jams, ballads, rockers, and examinations of race and class before critical race theory even entered the mainstream lexicon. Yep. Um, standout tracks, the whole freaking album should be listened to. Yeah, Lo- but, Lotus, Lotus Flower is a good record. That's like one of the two or three late period records from Prince I'm familiar yeah. with. Just awesome yeah. stuff. Like awesome, you said, yeah. but, you know, like you said a, a, a smidge of the fusion, uh, but it's basically, it sounds like a Prince record. Yeah, and just just to say, make when you listen to the whole album, you can skip track three, which is the silly, insipid version of Tommy James and the Shondells, Crimson and Clover. Oh, well, come that. on! I mean, there's there's no <laughs> such thing as a bad version of that. Even Joan Jett got that hit that one out of the park. <laughs> I mean, come on! Well, come on! Prince could do better than that. Anyway, the other two albums, MPLS Sound, MPLS being abbreviation for Minneapolis, get it? Uh, functions basically as the outtakes from the near musical perfection of Lotus Flower. And you could tell Prince had something special as is with Lotus Flower and didn't want to mess with the running order by like leaving the MPLS sound songs away from them. Um, Nevertheless, MPLS sound has some great tracks. 
chocolate box featuring Q-Tip from a tribe called Quest on Wrapped Verses is dance pop perfection and a refreshing throwback, not a recycling, of his early 1980s synth funk. It's one of the best, was one of the best singles that he put out in, in the noughties. Um, You're Gonna See Me is another in a long line of one of Prince's underrated specialties, the mid-tempo love ballad. Uh, and Dance For Me is a new wave-inflected dance floor killer of the kind Prince is unbeatable at and with a gnarly distorted guitar solo to boot. And that brings us to the third one, Elixir. It's really a collaborative album with then-up-and-coming R&B singer and fashion model Bria Valente, who was from the Minneapolis era, area and was, surprise, surprise, Prince's girlfriend at the time. Big it's shot. a pretty unremarkable set of smooth R&B soul and soft jazz pop, clearly an attempt by Prince to promote his latest ingenue. You can skip this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next, 2010. And it's, it's the number 20 and the word 10. Here we get one of the legitimately overlooked gems in Prince's entire catalog, Easily, in my opinion, his best album since 1992's Love Symbol. Yes, following the direction laid out by the previous year's should-have-been smash hit Chocolate Box, he goes for a 21st century update on his classic early-to-mid-1980s sound, particularly 1999 Purple Rain and Around the World in a Day. That sounds awesome. Guess what? It is awesome. Hmm. While this while this would typically come off like an artist recycling themselves, because Prince had not done this kind of music in such a long time, it actually comes off as refreshing and somewhat new. Uh, the hooks are great. The funk is deep. The rhythms are in high gear and the sexuality simmers, you know, for as much as sexuality can simmer for a Jehovah's Witness. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, you're talking about pretty lukewarm. That must be on a dimmer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, recommended tracks. Listen to the whole damn album. It's fucking great. That and Lotus Flower. Those the, those two are the one two wallop punch of the naughties that you should uh, all listen to. Now, it's time to take a little break and mention that from 2011 to 2013, there was very little activity by Prince, at least compared to the whirlwind of touring, recording, and record releasing that the public was used to seeing from him. Uh, he did a mid-sized British festival called the Hop Farm Festival in the Hop Farm Festival in the summer of 11, and a brief U.S. tour in spring 13 with his new all-female band called Third Eye Girl. Um, he released only a handful of standalone singles via streaming services and other download services. So it's very little activity. There's a reason for this. The Prince camp has been generally elusive about this, but a lot has been written by different sources that have been corroborated. And it's the fact that around this time, Prince started to have serious problems uh, with his hips, likely a degenerative hip condition. Yeah, And by extension, quite possibly problems with his back as well. Yeah, You have to realize, in addition to being a musician for most of his life, he was also a very physical performer 
who's yeah. taxing tour, yeah, a very taxing touring schedule for over 20 years, couldn't have done wonders for his joints. Oh, I know. know. I mean, well, the hips, I mean, remember the guy could do like a split, like nobody's yep. business. Uh, yeah. So like doing all those things. Yeah. I mean, you do that. I mean, with his touring schedule, he, you, you figure what those last 15 years, at least, t- at least 10 years, if you go like, oh, one to 10, he was probably doing what, like a hundred shows a year still. Yeah. And, he, and he was raking in the millions, the opposite yeah. of Michael Jackson. He was not in debt at all. <laughs> no, he, he was very, very, very uh, much uh, uh, in the black, but he was out there uh, shaking his ass. Literally, he was a sexy MF shaking his ass. Uh, to the point where he was basically, uh, he was like a kind of a dog with dysplasia, you know, like he was, yeah. he was in bad shape. And here's the thing. Prince was also like, I guess, like I mentioned earlier, a Jehovah's witness. And in that sect of Christianity, it's considered a sin to mutilate your body uh, with, uh, or mutilate your body with open hole, put open holes in your body in any manner. Yep. Uh, giving a doctor permission to perform surgery on you is considered self-mutilation according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. So that means any kind of operation was off the table as far as Prince was concerned. So where else could he go to alleviate the pain? Simple. Drugs. Yep. And in, and in Prince's case, painkiller drugs of the opioid variety. Naturally, he became addicted, very similarly to Michael Jackson, yet another similarity in their parallel lives. Um, this addiction and the lack of treatment for his worsening hip problems would lead to a physical decline that would eventually dovetail into his eventual death. But before that, there are a few more albums to quickly, and I mean quickly because they aren't <laughs> that good, uh, go through. <laughs> you have yeah. 2014, Art Official Age, one of his two albums in 14. And it should have been only one because this album is a turgid, dull, lifeless Prince by Numbers affair. Yeah, pretty much. It was recorded all recorded all by himself. Nothing wrong there. But it was also recorded all digitally. And it sounds just as lifeless. Yeah. It almost sound it almost sounds like a bad parody of Prince. Yeah, the, 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 the funny part was, is I think he was hoping that it was going to be a comeback record of sorts because he, oh he, he did a huge media blitz around. It was Artificial Age, and then the other, uh, uh, he, he came, you're going to talk about another album yeah. that he had come out like very shortly after that in yep. 2014, yep. Yep. that he, he was doing cover stories all over the place, or at least trying to, uh, and yeah. I think that, and so it's kind of funny that he, he I guess maybe he was uh, thinking he was all awesome with his uh, digital uh, self yeah. and must've really been proud of those things. Cause yeah, he, he was trying to blitz uh, at yeah. that point. Like he ended up on the cover of essence. I think it's at one point and ro- he they was, was on the cover of Mojo. Yeah. Mojo. And he was, he, he was supposed to be on the cover of Rolling Stone, but, uh, as, as I understand it from uh, friends of mine that worked there, uh, there was a, uh, uh, issue over the cover photo where he wanted, uh. you know, there was a specific photo that he wanted them to run that they wouldn't, and they, he wouldn't let them shoot him. But anyway, uh, that's yeah. besides the point. The, the point being is that the, the, these albums, which are lousy, were Prince, I think, was styling them as his sort of grand comeback uh, yeah. in, into the mainstream. Yeah, the, the, uh, um, the gold uh, artificial age, uh, the only decent track on it is the gold standard. It's the only track appropriating any kind of inspiration. Now, Pelectrum Electrum, the other album, <laughs> this, this is a little better. This is a little better. Um, the, it's the only album he recorded with his all-female band, Third Eye Girl. 
And it's notable because it's the closest he ever came to doing a full-on rock album or a full-on funk rock album. And there, there are some good songs. It's, it's not it's not great, but it's not as embarrassing as Artificial Age. <laughs> um, uh, Pretzel Body Logic and the title track sound like Prince getting in touch with his inner Led Zeppelin. Uh, funk and Roll jams like the Funkadelic tribute that it's supposed to be and all the better for it. So it's it's not that bad. It's by far the best of those two 2014 albums. And then in 2015, he had hit in his final albums, Hit and Run Phase 1 and Hit and Run Phase 2, uh, released three months apart from each other. Both albums are rather inconsistent affairs, but Phase 1 has the more interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Shut This Down has some of the best hip-hop textures he had utilized since Sign of the Times. And there's another in a long line of should have been hit singles. It's a really, really great track. Um, Fall in Love Tonight is a blissful slice of vintage 2010 streamlined pop. The kind that Maroon 5 would have pimped their mothers for. Sure. Uh, X's Face is an incredible, dark, seductive hybrid of trip hop and modern hip hop that serves as a by now typical Prince commentary on poverty and life in the inner cities. Uh, phase two isn't as inspired with its creativity, but tracks like stare and screwdriver are pleasant funk and pop rock jams. Okay. So this brings us to the end of Prince's recorded output. There you go. And yeah, that, well, that, that is a lot now, of stuff. A lot of stuff. Now, he, now here's the thing. He got back on the touring horse in 2014, like you alluded to, Chris, to support Artificial Age and uh, Polectrum Electrum, while 2015 saw him take the stage only twice, one time at his Paisley Park estate uh, at a show titled Dance Rally for Peace and another at Baltimore's Royal Farms Arena called Rally for Peace, both of, both of which were tribute shows to Freddie Gray, a young unarmed African-American uh, man yeah. who was murdered by Baltimore police. Yeah. Um, in February 2016, he did a tour of small capacity venues in Australia and New Zealand called the Piano and a Microphone Tour, which was, yep, you a guessed it. A piano and a microphone. <laughs> yeah, just, just prints accompanied by nothing more than a custom piano. Uh, he had just started an American version of that same tour when he canceled it in April 2016 due to illness. And this leads us to the end. Uh, the illness that was cited by his representatives at the time was influenza, but that was not the case. Nope. Uh, on the plane ride back to Minneapolis, Prince, in fact, was found unresponsive and the plane had to make an emergency landing in Moline, Illinois, in order to rush him to a hospital. He was given a naloxone, yep. a drug normally given to wake people up from opioid overdoses. Uh, on April 20th, Prince's people contacted a doctor named Howard Kornfeld, who was a specialist in pain treatment and addictive medicine, to give him uh, medical help. An appointment was made between Kornfeld and Prince for the 22nd, and an appointment for Prince to do a physical exam was scheduled on the 21st. Unfortunately, on the morning of the 21st, a 911 call was made 
to the Carver County Sheriff's Office claiming a dead body was found in an elevator on Prince's Paisley Park estate. The caller was apparently Cornfeld's son, who had arrived that morning to talk to Prince about a treatment plan before the formal meeting with Cornfeld Sr. EMTs arrived. They identified the body as Prince's. Duh, he's one of the most famous guys in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, they tried to resuscitate him, but couldn't due to the fact that he had already been dead for six hours. An autopsy revealed that he died from an overdose of fentanyl, yeah. a very strong and highly addictive opioid. Yeah. He was 57 years old. Yeah. Fent now, fentanyl is a crisis uh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. become a real bad crisis, but, but say what you were going to say and then I'll chime yeah. in. Yeah. Um, being twice divorced and having no children that we know of, uh, and he had no will. Uh, according to Minnesota state probate law, no spouse and no kids me meant that Prince's full sister, Tika Nelson, and his five half-siblings are the only ones with a claim to his estate. As of this episode that you're listening to now, the estate remains unsettled and is currently and temporarily being run by a company called Bremer Trust. Yep. And that's, that's what they do. I mean, so, uh, as a as an attorney who I've done some writing about what they call intestacy in the last year, yeah, uh, it's not a good idea to die uh, without a will, and especially sure. if you've got lots of money and lots of assets, and you yeah. also have lots of siblings, uh, right? <laughs> because uh, if you don't know what Prince's wishes are, then there's going to be a whole lot of uh, it's going to be like you know pigs and a trough. You know, and it's like uh, the one that gets in there first, you know, it's going to be like a battle. Uh, so it's unfortunate that there, there, there's a few thoughts I have about uh, Prince. I think that his death was really shocking uh, yeah. because no, no one, no one, no one no, knew he was an addict. <laughs> no, there was no, you know, look, he, there was no history of rehab. There was no history of erratic behavior. Uh, it wasn't like Whitney who like, you know, yeah. Whitney Houston only like lost 20 pounds and was acting weird and there was speculation like several right. years before we had a confirmation that she was a cocaine addict uh you know it wasn't like michael who you know had very famous yeah. legal battles or wyland or anybody so there was no criminal record there was no erratic behavior uh there was no sort of even uh, rehab kind of stuff we didn't even know that you know i mean a lot of artists would have interviews and saying hey you know i mean i've got these arthritic or i need to get a fake knee or if they right. kept, you know, like these older artists, they start talking about their pain. None of that. Uh, and so out of the blue, he drops dead. And then we find out all the stuff that he had, you know, you know, he had overdosed on a plane and uh, all of this other stuff. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's really, really sad. Like you said, you know, the, the, the narrative, it's kind of darkly funny that uh, the doctor's son is at the bottom of Paisley Park at the elevator. Prince is coming down the elevator to meet him dies on the way down and so essentially yeah. what happens is is that uh, the, the doctor's son and maybe like one of prince's female assistants are standing there waiting for him door opens prince is there dead yeah <laughs> so i can't even imagine the the visual uh for that and uh, he, he was dead for six hours in that elevator yeah i mean they they were saying that but i think it was either they were expecting him to come down and he didn't and then maybe that's what happened that they had to pry it open or I thought it was just that the, the elevator door opened and he was sitting there, sitting there dead. 
I was. Well, I, I think what it may have been is that they went there in the morning. Okay, let's go see Prince. And they pressed the elevator, opened. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he he was yeah. They found him in the or yeah, basically one one of those types of things. But you know, it speaks to the whole fentanyl thing that um, it is really insidious. I mean, most of the heroin overdoses in this country are uh, not really because of the heroin; it's because of the fentanyl that yeah know, people are taking all this poison heroin. Because it's cut, yeah. cut with fentanyl, and you know fentanyl as a as a painkiller, uh, uh, that's what killed Tom Petty as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Petty is another one that all of a sudden, you know, uh, we had no idea. Yeah. We we knew he was a huge pothead, but we didn't know that he was hooked right. on that stuff. So it was a real, it was a real shock, and it it wasn't as it wasn't sad with Prince. It was just shocking. It still yeah. is, and because there was so much music. And he was so right. prolific, it still doesn't feel like he's dead. You know, yeah. Mike, Michael hadn't done anything for years and was a pariah when he died. And so everybody was grieving or lamenting, but also was like, well, that's kind of inevitable. <laughs> you yeah, know, like yeah. people, people had been expecting something to like the shit to hit the fan for years, whereas, you know, Prince still feels like he's around. I mean, uh, right. the other interesting thing, one last note, and then I'll let you wrap it up. Uh, we talked about Taylor Swift a couple episodes ago, like re-recording her stuff in a yeah. master's fight. Uh, Prince was talking about going back and re-recording his old stuff. He was talking about like, yeah, you know, wouldn't it be kind of cool if I went and did 1999 now based on everything I know or where I am, or if I re-recorded Purple Rain or recorded re-recorded Sign of the Times. And so in his, his case, it might not have been facsimiles. It was maybe been uh, just sort of here's my take now. 30 years older on 1999. So we, we lost the chance to hear that, which would have been utterly fascinating. I would not have wanted to hear that as a Prince fan, his classic stuff should be fossilized and left alone. I agree. I think he should have just kept going. Had he not died, just kept doing new. I'd rather him hear him keep doing new music than re-record his old songs. I don't like when people re-record their old songs. I really don't. Yeah. And well, here's a question by the way, and, and maybe this shouldn't, this is indicting myself here. Uh, have you heard the posthumous one that he came out with in 21, the welcome to America or whatever the name of that record is. I'm glad I was going to mention that in my, in my, uh, my final thing about Prince, Go ahead. my final words. Okay. Now I'm going to mention my final words on Prince. There you go. Um, with a lot of artists and a testament to his, to his greatness is that you have a lot of bands and artists who have a lot of stuff in their archive and they're usually, you know, outtakes stuff left on the cutting room floor and stuff like that. For most bands and most artists, that material in the vault is vastly inferior to what they officially put out. Um, in Prince's case, that's not the case. <laughs> um, uh, Welcome to America is an entire album that he recorded in 2010. Okay. Uh, around the time of the album, 2010. And he recorded it and then he shelved it. He, 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 after we recorded it, he mixed it, he got it all set to go. And he said, you know what? I'm not releasing it. And the reason, according to interviews, the people who knew him that he didn't release it is that he thought the lyrical subject matter was too dark. <laughs> um, and if, and at this point, you know, in his career and his life, he, Prince was all about being positive. So hence out comes the album 2010, which is a very, some would say lightweight, but I would say, you know, deliciously and uh, uh, um, endearingly lightweight because it really does 
harken back to his 80s sound unlike any other album he'd ever done after the 80s. But anyway, um, Welcome to America. Musically, it's daring. It's eclectic. It's dark and it's edgy. And lyrically, it's probably the most political that he's ever been in his entire career. Like seriously, this he recorded this in 2010. There are lyrics on this album that are like genuine Black Lives Matter anthems before Black Lives Matter became a thing. Oh yeah, um, he was on that shit uh, way earlier, and uh, the album's a masterpiece. Like, had he released this in 2010, it may not have been a commercial blockbuster. But it would have been a critical triumph, and it would have been hailed as his best album since Sign of the Times. It yeah. really is that. It really is that good. Um, you know, last last year I said Idols Crawler is my album of the year. If I want to really say my, I would say this is the second best album, and it's a reissue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say uh, so. Yeah, I, I need I need to hear this, but I had heard about that, and you're right. You know, Prince was a fan, and it interviews for years where he used to brag about, you know, uh, you know, my best stuff I haven't released. Like I purposely hold back, uh, yeah. my, my best stuff, uh, you know, as kind of gems for a later date. It's like, he likes to stash away. And yeah. what, what, welcome to America is astonishing. It's like, almost, it, it almost makes me pissed off at him. Why the fuck did you hold this back? Yeah. Like, this well, would have been his comeback record. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the kind of thing, but you know, but it's like tantamount to, or, or parallel, like, Neil Young back in 73, 74, yeah. who like basically shelved what about five albums yeah. uh, that have come since come out, uh, you know, in the last 10 years yeah. in this archive space. But it, yeah, it's the kind of thing when you're, when you're that prolific and that good, it's kind of like, you know, and that eccentric, it's like, who knows, who the hell right. knows what you're going to do. So, right, I mean, right. That, but that was Prince, um, uh, again, another sad demise, but in a different way, because you know, like, sure. you know Prince, Prince was one of these guys that there was still a lot of life left. You know, I mean, yeah. he's 57. He wasn't done. I mean, he was, uh, he would have gotten to a point where maybe at 62, 63, he would have made another masterpiece, you know? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the pressure, the pressure was off. And so, uh, with that, uh, Bon Voyage Prince, and that is the end of the final chapter of Prince versus Michael Jackson. Uh, we hope that we have done both guys well. Uh, tell us your thoughts, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And now, folks, it is time for a very special edition of The Vault. It's the swinging 60s edition of The Vault, where Chris and I will both take great albums from the mid to late 60s period. Lost. Well, one of these albums isn't very lost, because it's by a legendary artist. But the other album is kind of lost, and we're going to talk about them. And uh, these were two visionary artists. One of them was in a band. One of them was a solo, was a solo act. Um, but Chris, I'm going to take the band. Are you ready to hear about this one? Yeah. Tell me. Tell me what band you're uh, you're taking and extracting and uh, out and mining uh, out of the vault. Yes. Fourteen episodes ago, episode twelve to be exact, <laughs> we did an episode devoted to interesting and or unconventional versions of Bob Dylan songs. One of my picks was the 13th Floor Elevator's shimmering, drugged out, yet beautiful version of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue from their 1967 album, Easter Everywhere. For this episode's installment of The Vault, the theme is swinging 60s, like I said, and I will dive into that album as a whole. 
Now, for our loyal curmudgeonly listeners out there who may not know, the 13th Floor Elevators were arguably the first psychedelic rock band. At the very least, they were the first band to call their music psychedelic rock in the mid-1960s. They were true pioneers, and they not only opened doors that other more prominent bands walked through, they virtually created the style, the aesthetic, and the language of psychedelic rock that is still being explored today by bands such as The OCs, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, Wand, and Slift. Now, these guys didn't just talk the talk. They walked the walk with a druggy zest. They were known to not just play every show high on LSD. They also wrote songs while high on LSD. And they usually recorded in the studio tripping on LSD. Who are these guys? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They formed in December 1965 in Austin, Texas, when 18-year-old singer-songwriter extraordinaire Rocky Erickson left his poppy garage band, The Spades, to join lead guitarist Stacy Sutherland, drummer John, Wyke, John, Ike, John Ike Walton, and bassist uh, Benny Thurman, who were in a band called The Lingsman. Instrumental in getting these guys together was Tommy Hall, an aspiring poet, drug fiend, and LSD dealer. Yes, you heard that last part right. <laughs> That's how he made his money. Um, in the band, Hall would become their main lyricist and play the electric jug, which is a quote-unquote instrument, and I use that term loosely, that sounds like two gallons of water bubbling and boiling in a pot and mic'd up for maximum effect. Uh, Just a month after forming uh, the band, um, they signed with Texan independent label International Artists and recorded a single called You're Gonna Miss Me, which slowly grew from being a regional hit in Texas to an even even bigger hit throughout the western parts of the country to a national hit that peaked at number five on the Billboard pop chart. Now, throughout 1966, they toured extensively in Texas and mostly in Texas. The reason for this was a marijuana bust that happened at Tommy Hall's home in January of that year. Very little pot was actually found. And stories circulated that the cops actually planted pot in <laughs> Erickson's possession. But oh, this being, shit. Yeah. Uh, but this being Texas in the 1960s, you can imagine that being busted with pot was akin to being busted with heroin or crystal meth in modern times. For what it's worth, that's still the case as I live in Texas. <laughs> and they, they still uh, believe in reefer madness down here. But uh, yeah. go ahead. What would have resulted in serious jail time for all the band members and their immediate entourage ended up in them getting off on probation due to Erickson's mom being in the same church as the district attorney's wife who convinced her husband to move the trial up a few weeks in order to avoid a stricter judge. True story. (laughs) The, The probation meant that they could only leave Texas with a special permission from the courts. And uh, uh, at the time, they could only be away, at the, the, the time being away from Texas could, o- could only be limited, usually three weeks at a time. So not to be deterred, the band took these periods to tour in California, performing in both Los Angeles and San Francisco, the latter of which saw them perform 
at famous venues such as the Fillmore and the Avalon, alongside the Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Moby Grape, and Big Brother and the Holding Company, i.e. the band that Janis Joplin was in. They also made two nationally televised appearances on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. And it was during this intense period of touring that the elevators honed the original material that would end up being on their debut album. While Tommy Hall's lyrics mostly dealt with achieving a higher level of consciousness through copious LSD use. Yes, they were that brazen and open about it. The music, which was mostly driven by Erickson and lead guitarist Sunderland, was surprisingly quite unpsychedelic. It sounded more like a revved up, aggressive folk rock, almost proto-punk uh, in its approach. And they didn't look like typical San Francisco hippies or even the L.A. equivalents. They wore flannel shirts, denim jeans, sometimes corduroy jackets and pants. They look like scruffy grunge punk versions of hippies. Mm -hmm. and, and this is partially what would endear them 10 years later to punk rockers enamored with the mid-60s garage rock boom. In late 66, they released the seminal classic album, The Psychedelic Sounds of the 13th Floor Elevators, which even for its time sounds a bit crude in regard to production and sound quality. Uh, in Paul Drummond's wonderful book, the 13th Floor Elevators, A Visual History. He puts forth via interviews with people in the elevator circle that the owners of the label, unbeknownst to the band, went into the studio with a Houston radio DJ to remix the album right before its release with the purpose of burying the zealous pro-drug message in the lyrics in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To not make it seem so obvious. Um, being on an indie label with poor distribution meant that their debut sold only 40,000 copies. Good for an indie label, bad for a band with higher ambitions. This led to perpetual tensions between the band and label, and there were tensions within the band as well. Uh, the drummer and bassist left the band shortly after the album's release, due to the pair's disagreement with Erickson and Hall over the latter duo's insistence on their lyrical pro-drug message. Upon getting a new rhythm section, the elevators returned to the studio in September 67, right after the epochal Summer of Love, to record the follow-up to Psychedelic Sounds, and the result was a near masterpiece and a classic of the era. Uh, an Easter Everywhere, the intense rocking out of the debut album is toned down a bit and allows more space for achingly beautiful, mind-melting guitar textures. And it ultimately allows the listener more space to focus on the lyrics, which got even more extreme in their acid-fried wonkiness. Uh, the band were on a mission to convert the masses to the gospel of LSD since their inception, and that mission reaches a fever pitch on the opening track and first single, the powerful and immortal eight-minute epic, Slip Inside This House. Yep. Now, how to describe a song that serves as the most unabashed, eloquent testament to the transformative powers of LSD ever recorded? Well, listen to the words, man. Here we go. Bedouin tribes ascending from the egg into the flower. Alpha information sending state within the heaven shower. 
from disciples the unending subtleties of river power. They slip inside this house as they pass by. If your limbs begin dissolving in the water that you tread, all surroundings are evolving in the stream that clears your head. Find yourself a caravan like Noah must have led and slip inside this house as you pass by. Yeah, I uh, that uh, at, at least the music was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, well that, and those are just the first three stanzas. Groovy, yeah, I was, man. <laughs> yeah, I was I was gonna say who who knew who knew that those giraffes on the boat were all fucked up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, seriously though, in all seriousness, the elevators are one of the those few bands, if not perhaps the only band, that transcended psychedelic rock as a nifty little subgenre to a band that actually makes you want to take acid. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, they, they definitely were very reverent and very poetic about it. But I will say this, of all the Ken Casey era bands, they their stuff was pretty. Uh, yeah. by, by this point, uh, Easter Everywhere, like you said, they had put in enough space and had, you know, advanced enough that, yeah, it was still wonky. It was still basically a, a pro-drug uh, uh, message uh, uh, jingle like a, an hour long druggy jingle, right. but it was pretty and it was, it had a depth to it. Like even the dead during this period, like it's like we've said before, Anthem of the sun. I can't call an album. It's a collage of interesting pieces. Some of which are beautiful and some of which are shitty. Yeah. Uh, this album is just pretty. Like I'm, obviously that Dylan cover, uh, a lot of it, it's just really, really pretty. And like I said, goofy, uh, but you can still respect these guys as musicians. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. A couple more tracks worth listening to. Um, I've Got Levitation. It was the second great title. <laughs> was the was the second single from the album. And a, re- and a reasonable regional hit in Texas. It was. With the lyrical subject matter. The lyrical subject matter, let's, let's face it, is quite obvious. I've Got Levitation. <laughs> but the song glides with the grooviest chord progression and lead guitar line that the Rolling Stones would have killed for. And then you have the final track, Postures, quote, uh, parentheses, leave your body behind, of course, is a mid-tempo beauty. It's almost a ballad that manages to take their patented transcendence via LSD mission statement and turn it into something approaching both elegy and desperation. They really tr- uh, they, they tread that line in a, in a wonderfully effective way. Um, Easter Everywhere was released in late October 1967, and it sold even less than their first album at 10,000 copies. Yikes. Um, some record labels just sucked at promotion and getting their acts out there. And international artists, a label run by lawyers with almost no musical background or knowledge, they were one of them. <laughs> yeah. um, the band didn't do themselves any favors, though. Uh, between the constant revolving door of musicians... Uh, guitarist Sunderland's increasing heroin addiction, electric jugman uh, Hall's failed attempts at power grabbing, and frontman Erickson's uh, his eroding mental stability due to constant LSD use. Um, yeah, the band, the band was doomed. Um, the latter situation, but Rocky Erickson, that's the most heartbreaking and well publicized aspect of the band's story. Uh, Starting in 1968, Erickson embarked on an in-and-out spell at an Austin mental institution that lasted almost two years. When he wasn't breaking out of the asylum, yes, 
breaking out. I'm yeah, not kidding. Yeah, he, 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 <laughs> broke out of, he broke out of the nut house. Yep. Yeah. To, uh, he, and he would break out of the asylum to abuse drugs, particularly acid and shooting up amphetamines. Yikes. Um, when he wasn't doing that, he was in the asylum taking experimental psychiatric drugs that messed him up even more. <laughs> uh, toward the end of 1969, rather than face a prison term for a felony marijuana charge, Erickson chose to enter a maximum security psychiatric hospital where he stayed for five years. Uh, the fracturing band made some unfinished recordings in early 68 that frankly went nowhere. And Hall, Erickson, and Sutherland played their last show in April of that year. By this time, their live shows had become erratic and lacking in energy. The drug use that initially fueled them now just sapped them of their energy. Uh, that didn't stop international artists from putting out more Elevators product, though. Uh, in August of that year, they put out a supposed live LP loaded with fake audience noise and applause, of course, that was actually made up of demos and outtakes dating back to 1966. Yeah, that didn't sell well either. Uh, uh, to his credit, to his credit, Stacy Sutherland tried to keep the flag of the 13th floor elevators by, uh, keep that flag flying by now the only original member, he cobbled together a rhythm section in the second half of 1968 to record some sessions. The label pulled together some of the uncompleted session recordings and released the official quote unquote final album by the 13th floor elevators, bull of the woods in March, 1969. Hall and Erickson appeared in on, on only a couple of the tracks. And frankly, it was an Elevators album in name only. The soul and spirit of the band was long gone by now. Good news, though. The band's rehabilitation began in earnest with the release of the 1972 compilation, Nuggets, Original Artifacts, or Artifacts, as it's spelled, from the first psychedelic era, 1965 to 68, with its focus on garage rock bands that would eventually have a big influence on the oncoming punk rock movement. Yes, From, one of the single most important uh, album or... Uh, box sets. Uh, box sets or album collection sets ever released. Yeah, definitely. Incredible. Um, from then, the band's legacy and reputation have continued to grow to the point that they're more well-known now uh, than they ever were in their existence. Uh, bands and artists such as R.E.M., the Jesus and Mary Chain, Primal Scream, Henry Rollins, and Queens of the Stone Age have all gone on record praising the Elevators as a rich and deep influence on their music. Uh, the band's original members, minus Tommy Hall and minus Sutherland, who was killed in a domestic dispute in 1978, uh, briefly reunited in 1984. The band with Hall reunited again and for the final time in 2015 to headline Austin Psych Fest, a showcase for psychedelic rock bands. In 2005, after finally finding the right cocktail of medication to treat his schizophrenia, Rocky Erickson became a touring musician again, playing a mix of 13th Floor Elevators classics and material from his scattered solo albums throughout the years. He continued this, uh, continued doing this until his unfortunate death in the spring of 2019. To this day, the cause of his death is unknown. But let's not end on a sour note. Rocky Erickson and Stacey Sutherland will always live as long as the 13th floor elevator's music is out there. And their music will always be out there as long as there are rock bands playing gonzo, weirdo, outsider, 
acid-fried, drug-fueled rock and roll, no matter how off the mainstream map they are. Uh, but that was that was a good run through of, of the 13th floor elevators. That's the kind of depth that only your curmudgeons uh, can at least try to give you and uh, right. what we strive for. Uh, speaking of which. Um, oh, but by the way, by the way, Chris, can I say something? We, yes, talked, you may. About, we talked about Michael Jackson um, being this like this musical genius who creeped everybody out. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're going to talk about the French version. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. That that is a setup. So, uh, th- obviously, as you could tell, this is the the theme of this is really weird, crazy, creepy guys in the late '60s that made indelibly beautiful uh, underground uh, uh, rock and roll that continues to have uh, very much a cult uh, around it. And uh, so, not this guy- not 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 underground in France. Certainly not underground in France, but he became. But he's underground in America. But France, uh, he was about as pop star. Uh, fair to say, he was about as big as Sinatra there for a while, right? Yeah. In France. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, before we get into uh, uh, and the gentleman in, 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 that we're talking about is Serge Gainsbourg, correct? Um, and his nineteen and Chris will really delve into his nineteen sixty eight album Initials BB BB standing for Bridget Bardot. <laughs> there's more on there's more on that coming um yeah, um, yeah Serge Gainsbourg uh, before Chris takes up the story of the album um let me say that there is a wonderful book by a British music journalist called Jeremy Allen uh last year as in 2021 he published a book called um uh what's it called again uh-huh. relax baby be cool it's the biography of uh, Serge Gainsbourg and it goes through his entire career his entire life and it's a highly, highly recommended book. One of my favorite uh, 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 music books or music biographies of last year. Check it out. It was the inspiration for Chris's choice uh, for this episode of The Vault. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Serge Gainsbourg has always been kind of a fascinating uh, character because he was so talented, but so fucked up, or at least he became really messed up. And so uh, let's get into uh, Serge uh, a little bit and initials uh, BB. So Lucien Ginsburg was a Russian Jewish immigrant coming of age in Paris in the early 1940s. Yep. uh, That tended to leave a mark, uh, specifically (laughs) a yellow star for Ginsburg and his family uh, who had emigrated from what is now the Ukraine uh, uh, before, shortly after uh, Serge's uh, birth. Now, as an adult, Lucien Ginsburg morphed into the sophisticated, exotic, and more than occasionally deliberately strange musical icon, Serge Gainsbourg. Serge has become a figure of cult oddity fascination in rock geek annals over time, but there was a period in the 1950s and 1960s where Gainsbourg was as happening as it got in France and the rest of Europe. Like I said, he might as well been, have been a figure uh, on the level of a Frank Sinatra. Uh, and back and then. by the way, in the 1980s, he had a massive popular comeback as well. Yes, this is true. Yeah, he did. He did. But but at that point, it was kind of like, you know, like, you know, Brian is back with the Beach Boys. It was kind of this yeah. more kind of, you know, yeah. un- unleashed, you know, Godzilla comes back after you know 30 right. years in captivity. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Gainsbourg, he wrote hits. He dated Bridget Bardot and then eventually dated for a long time Jane Birkin. Uh, so he he was uh, a guy who got all the hot actresses. 
and was out there. He wrote for them. He wrote for them them and wrote for them. Like Bridget Bardot, uh, any kind of pop starlet uh, uh, momentum she had was all because of Surge. So he was a swinging cat who caught on to the campy but cool garage stylings of the late 1960s. On the heels of all of that, he became a bona fide rock star. Yet the darkness of Lucien Ginsburg's childhood never left Serge yeah. Gainsbourg, the adult creation. There's a darkness and a subversiveness that permeates Gainsbourg's work, even when he's at his poppiest and most smile-inducing. Uh, the best example of this came in 1968, uh, recorded in London during arguably the most exciting artistic period in that city's history, the album Initials BB is a masterpiece-level tour through a mischievous and turbulent mind. Uh, First, let's state the obvious. Uh, This is one hell of an accessible pop fun record, or fun pop record. Yeah. Yeah, there there you go. It's so weird we, we can't say it right. A fun pop record. The hooks are all tight, and they're all exquisite. The organ and percussion flourishes are just, you know, incredibly just fun and they just make you laugh and smile. And it, it, it's, it's a good mood kind of record. Uh, it's a good party record. It's essentially, and you've, then you get all those, um, I guess you can call them choruses recited by women that are consistently hilarious. Uh, listen to this album once. And for at least an hour, you won't be able to get that shabam, pow, bop, whiz, uh, onomatopoeia. Yeah. Yeah. Refrain from comic strip out of your head. It's the same thing with all those cheekily delivered lines from uh, Bridget Bardot on Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Hell of a coincidence that that was the year that Bonnie and Clyde became such a big hit in America. The movie Uh, 67 or 68 around there. It came it came out late 67, but by 68, it was a, a smash. Yeah, it had become a phenomenon. Now, through all of that, uh, Gainsbourg found a way to slip darkness even into that record's mix. Yeah. You get the song, uh, Dr. Jekyll et Monsieur Hyde, uh, which is a pretty obviously self-referential song, uh, even as it bops along like a theme song from one of those silly Michael Caine spy movies uh, or the theme song of the newlywed game, etc. Uh, lyric, uh, my name is Hyde, uh, Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll seen in his life. This is the English translation, how it reads. Only little bitches who made fun of him. Mr. Hyde in his heart took notes from the doctor, for the doctor. No, there's any more Dr. Jekyll. I suspect that's supposed to be no, there's no more Dr. Jekyll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so there's that. And then you get the album closer, Shutter Tone, which makes things very plainly blunt. It has perhaps the album's best guitar riff on it. Now, together with its accompanying horns, you may think that Steve Cropper and Otis Redding wrote this damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> but wait, is he really giving us a summation on famous people who killed themselves yeah. or went notes and then telling us, regarding me, I have not been well lately? This is how it <laughs> translates. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, I'm wondering, should I really be laughing or singing or, as Arturo can attest to, dancing around like a fool uh, to this stuff. Uh, turns out that Serge predicted his future pretty well uh, in that song. As the 1960s faded into the 1970s and the 1970s set up the depraved 1980s, Serge Gainsbourg segued from ironic campiness to blatant subversiveness 
drunkenness and creepiness. Yeah. Now, he did let that uh, Holocaust survivalism out into the open on an absolutely remarkable album from 1975 called Rock Around a Bunker. (laughs) Might actually deserve its own vault segment. Yeah. But this this album is simultaneously uproarious, satirical, and devastating. Here's a hint. Sirs loves Chuck Berry and Fats Domino, but hates the Germans. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the Boogie Woogie song on this thing is called Yellow Star. Geesh. I mean, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, essentially that's what it is. It's an old-timey rock and roll song about surviving the Holocaust and about fuck the Germans. Yeah. Uh, it's It's dark, but it is amazing. Uh, wonderfully it's, I mean, the guy was a craftsman, but yeah, yeah he, 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 he was dark twisted and well, perhaps- he, he was, he was a classically trained musician. Yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, like, he was like, in, like his piano playing was classical. That was his background. Classical music oh, I know. and jazz. That's, that, well, that's how he got started. I mean, he got he came up in the jazz clubs of France in the 1950s and then eventually segued into this pop formula that made him so uh, such a huge star. Now, you know, like I said, so he he brings out some of that personal darkness out into the light. Now, however, what should have been obvious and understandable tragic comedy was very, very, very overshadowed by Gainsbourg's accelerating wave of embarrassing and sho- shocking public behavior. Oh, yeah. And now I will let Arturo take some of this here later once I get through my setup. This included lusting over Whitney Houston on a talk show in 1986. Uh, go find the YouTube clip. Very funny. And I'll have Arturo explain that in detail in a little bit. And at times... He even lusting, he was even lusting publicly over his own daughter, Charlotte, who is a French hip musical icon in her own right. Now, maybe that latter bit was a put on. It was. But but given how (laughs) disgusting Serge became otherwise, it was hard to tell. Yeah. Very much an alcoholic. Yeah. Smoked five packs a day. Yeah. Was really just, he was whacked out of his mind. He was pretty much a dysfunctional alcoholic and uh he he basically was like that uh not even an uncle like your great uncle that you just dread coming over because you know he's gonna like fall face down in the turkey on thanksgiving <laughs> exactly what he was yeah and he's gonna and he's probably gonna try to fuck his niece uh <laughs> and, you know forget that so yeah. anyway serge gainsburg uh eventually he died of a heart attack uh just before he turned 63 in 1991 uh that this severely alcoholic, chain-smoking, dirty old man of a curmudgeon, uh, he he is a spiritual cousin of the curmudgeons, uh, made it to that age is something of a miracle. But then so too are Initials BB and the albums that came immediately before and after it. Enjoy the hell out of Initials BB. I mean, it really is a fun-ass record. 33 minutes, uh, just really fun, funny, great hooks, and some like legitimately... Uh, amazing pop songs. However, I also encourage all of you listening to consider it with the seriousness and sobriety with which we presume you probably also consider Nirvana's in utero. Serge Gainsbourg is one of rock and roll's greatest sad clowns. Check him out. So on that note, we now leave the vault and we have come to the end of our 26th voyage. Uh, I'm really excited. Our first episode of uh, 2022. This is year two. Uh, we plotted to rule the world in 2021. We will rule the world in 2022. 
help us get there. Uh, join our Facebook uh, uh, community, the Curmudgeon Rock Reports Curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, you can uh, hit us up with complaints or uh, fan mail. We would hope fan mail at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And we're also uh, on all the places where you find all the podcasts. Uh, do a uh, search for Curmudgeon uh, Rock Report on Google, and you'll find all those places. And to clear it up for many friends and other people out there, C-U-R-M as in Mary, U-D-G-E-O-N. We love the name. That's how you spell it. Well, folks, as we close out, we just want to say we're thinking of all of you and hoping that you're staying safe during this Omicron phase of the COVID pandemic which gives us another good excuse to come out and say it. Fuck Eric Clapton. If it wasn't for Stevie Winwood, Jack Bruce, or Dwayne Allman, we likely wouldn't have to put up with that toxic piece of shit. So with that, let us just shut him out of this podcast for good and move on to better and much more worthy people. The curmudgeons will welcome you back here in two weeks. Be well, y'all.